Every step I take, I move my truth. Every time they tell me stop, I use. Every comment, hate that makes my feel. Gather up my energy and boom. I hear them talking, saying the way that I move is so reckless. That is a part of my mind I've been blessed with. Giving my blood so I am relentless. Well, Andrew Huberman, I cannot believe you're on the podcast. I'm super happy to be here. And I like that we're podcasting late in the evening because it's a different vibe. Yeah. You know, I think early in the day, just the brain is different than later in the day. And we've had quite a full day. So super happy to be here. We didn't have time to do a podcast earlier. We were too busy. <laughs> yeah, we were <laughs> We were um, grappling with the laws of physics. Yeah. So how was how your day? How is, uh, you know, I like to share my life with people who I admire or look up to or uh, uh, I'm inspired by. And you're all those three. So it meant a lot for me to be able to share today with you. What do you think? Well, first of all, right back at you. I'm... Uh, incredibly inspired by you. There are many a day when I'm back home and I'm like, I'm not going to run today. And then I look at your Instagram feed and I'm like, I'd better do it. <laughs> I better do it. You've dadded me a bunch of times that way. Um, today was spectacular. I'm still digesting the full magnitude of it. Um, you know, yesterday I gave this talk at University of Oregon to some students and thanks for coming out. You and Rihanna for coming out. That meant a lot to look into the front row and go, oh, friendly faces. Oh, yeah. I love and respect. So, um, and then got a good night's sleep, fortunately. Mm -hmm. Got some good long sleep. And then this morning we had to, tell me the proper pronunciation. Mount Pisgah. Mount Pisgah. And um, there was the option to hike it with either a 72 pound ruck backpack, which is how I normally mm -hmm. ruck once a week, but not with a 72 pound weight. Right. Normally for me, it's about 35 mm -hmm. or a 72 pound rucksack that goes over the shoulders, kind of more like beanbag rucksack yeah, or a 72 pound rock. And that 72 pound rock is a little mini boulder, you know, <laughs> yeah. but not mini boulder. I mean, this thing's about, how big is it? It's about the size of a this bear's head, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, right? yeah, about yeah. two foot long, mm -hmm. probably. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I picked the rock um, and I knew it was a mile and a half up and it was super hard work. Yeah. So I'll, I'll go on record saying that's the hardest, quote unquote, cardio workout I've ever done. My heart rate was up near max the entire time. Well, I was, I was impressed. So you, ha you did this goal, you set this goal for yourself, never to set the rock down. Don't set the rock down. <laughs> yeah. And that was going to make it harder. And that, you know, there's only been one other guy, Kip Folks, who didn't set it down. He rested on his legs a couple of times, but like you, he didn't set it down. But that's been, you know, I've had, I don't know, 40 guests now, all like tough people or endurance athletes or fighters or whatever. And, uh, it's only been you two who didn't set it down. So that's, I mean, that's impressive. I, you picked the, the hardest thing of the three and then carried it all the way up. Well, I'm here in Oregon with Cameron Haynes and crew. So I'm going to pick the hardest thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, how could I not? Yeah, they, the idea was to not set it down. I did stop, rested on my knee, but yeah. it was, and I just thought, don't set it down. Don't sit down. Because I think starting up again is harder mm -hmm. if you do that. It would be for me. And then there was one point at the end, this is that lesson and always, you know, we were talking about we're home stretch. Yeah. We took a pause, home stretch. Right. I'm like, okay, let's go. And then I slipped. Yep. It's right when you think you're there, <laughs> you know, and 
I did catch it. Mm-hmm. My arm stayed underneath it, stood up and, um, and kept going. And I'll tell you, saying that thing on the rock felt really good. On the monument? On the monument. Yeah, getting it off the, your shoulder. The, Ken Kesey, or the monument to Ken Kesey's son. Yeah. Um, and the monument's beautiful. I know we got some footage of that. Yeah. And I've seen you hop up on that thing, which by the way, folks, in the videos where Cam hops up on that monument, he makes it look so easy. Mm. It, it's, it, it takes some skill and some, <laughs> and some serious confidence to do that. So yeah, it felt amazing. Uh, again, the hardest cardio workout I've ever done. And you know, the last time I was here in this gym mm-hmm. slash studio, we did a circuit workout. Right. And I was sore for like two weeks. That mm. So there's something distinctly different and harder about the work that doesn't stop, mm-hmm. like incessant work. Right. You know, cause I do, you know, legs on Monday, you know, shoulders on Wednesday, right. you know, you know, Saturday arms, you know, yeah. in the gym and you get, you know, two, three minutes, sometimes five minutes rest between sets, you're drinking mm-hmm. water, listening to music, completely different game. Even if you're grinding out, you know, four straps at the end and you're yeah. sucking for air, but then the rest comes. But when the, when the rest does not come, Mm-hmm. it's a completely different test of your inner resource. And I was praying, yeah. I was trying to distract myself today. I mean, multiple times I thought I had to pull on all the, the resources. Yeah. yeah. Hey guys, looking to take your wellness to the next level? Blokes can help you. They are a modern health optimization service for men that is devoted to your physical, sexual, and mental health. From the convenience of your home, Blokes helps you test your hormones, consult with a board-certified clinician about your results, and receive a personalized plan and treatment specifically for you. Blokes' mission is to optimize men from the inside out. Patients come to them feeling old, tired, overweight, and like things aren't what they used to be. Blokes wants to help get that pet back in their step. Blokes improves men's lives by optimizing their hormones, the most essential chemical messengers in the body. Blokes is going to send someone to my house to draw my blood. No appointment was required, and I'm really excited to be partnering with them so I can keep hammering for another day. They're offering you guys 20% off labs if you use code CAM at blokes.co slash CAM. I don't know if I have the right formula, but what I've, you know, in regard to workout... I'm training for bow hunting. I mean, it sounds weird to some people, like you train to bow hunt, but yeah. So in bow hunting, it's, and in the mountains in particular, it's a test of endurance many times. And it's not just to endure, it's to endure and be at your best to deliver a perfect arrow. So it's, it's not like you just have to stumble your way through and just make it to the end because many times after you've pushed and pushed and pushed and you get that opportunity, then you have to be at your best, most accurate to make the best decision on when to shoot and then the most precise shot to offer that animal merciful kill. So my training is what I found prepares me for that moment. And I need to be able to just perform over long periods of time and then still capitalize. So that's kind of what I've designed my training for. And I don't know. I don't know if if it makes sense or I don't know, I just know it works for me. You know, right. I don't know as far as body, human body and training and mental and all that, if it's, you know, all the, the formula checks out, but for me, that's what works. Yeah. Well, clearly it does work. I mean, Cam is being humble, but you know, I've been informed by multiple, you know, seasoned elk hunters that even a very seasoned 
elk hunter might be lucky to get one um, bow hunted elk, you know, about 10% of the outings. Mm -hmm. That's not a very high numbers and come away with one bull per season would be even, even that would be an outrageously high number and you're, you're, you far exceed that. And um, so I can understand why, you know, you have so many fans and people are coming up to us on the trail and saying to Cam, you're a legend, like, you know, and you are, I mean, I, and it's earned, you know, I think uh, you should take that in because it's earned. Mm. It, uh, you can't, you know, you could, you could be a billionaire multi times over and you can't buy a skill. Mm -hmm. You can't buy the ability to get out into the wilderness and that far. And you left out a key part mm. after you get that perfect shot or yeah. perfect for that moment shot, then you got to carry the thing back. Right. So it's, I yeah. mean, it's even a lot of work breaking the animal down because that in itself, this, I want to share it with you so bad, just so, cause I feel like I love sharing this experience with, with new hunters or with people who, well, with anybody really, but to appreciate it, you have to know what that's like to be bent over an animal skinning it, quartering it, just how your back feels bent over for hours. And it's like, that's still all part of the process. But to your point, yeah, I mean, it's not over once the arrow is delivered and the animal's dead, then there's probably the most important part of the work. And that's getting the meat out before it spoils, get it out of the weather, get it cooled um, and get it taken care of. And then my, my, another, I mean, I love the whole process. Obviously I've dedicated my life to this, but then to go and share a meal of an animal I killed with people I care about, like tonight we had elk chili. So good. And I mean, I can't, ex I can't explain to somebody who, who maybe hasn't done, I can't explain it correctly, but to what that feels like as a hunter to, to do that is, uh, it just, I mean, it just feels right. It feels like that's how, that's what it's, that's how we're supposed to um, conduct ourselves and, and share our kill and provide. And it just, when somebody is eating a meat, some meat that I've killed and they say, man, this is so good. It's like it, I mean, it makes it all worthwhile. That's what it's all about. I love it. I love how you're so connected to every piece. Mm -hmm. you know, I feel very fortunate in my own life that, you know, I've dedicated myself to gathering, organizing and dispersing information. Mm -hmm. And I'd be doing that even if I didn't have a podcast. And I love every piece of it. And it's so clear um, knowing you and coming up here, especially today and going through first the, the ruck and then bow hunting, excuse me, shooting about uh, archery. Yeah. I was archery. Uh, see, I'm a true novice. We haven't bow we, hunted yet, but we yeah, will. We were hunting. I was hunting paper targets. That's right. Yeah. yeah. They were very stationary today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They didn't smell us. They couldn't, none of the difficulty. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Bow hunting. Uh, first step toward bow hunting. Mm -hmm. I would love to bow hunt someday. Uh, I have to tell you the archery. Um, well, first off I'm addicted. Mm. That was an amazing experience. There are not many things that I try for the first time. I'm like, I want to do this. Yeah. Um, so, so much to say about that. You know, like Lex had me take a jujitsu class for the first time. The guys at 10th planet in Austin are great. They walked me through it and mm -hmm. did that and it felt great. And I could see myself getting into jujitsu, but it didn't, you know, it didn't grab me right away mm. as something like, I want to explore this. Um, but the moment that first thwack yeah. hit the target today, I'm like, oh, I want to do this. What, why? What is it? What is it about it? There's just something so satisfying. I mean, there's a lot of steps for somebody who's never done it before. Yeah. 
Yeah, I knew which direction the arrow goes out, and that's yeah. about it. Yeah, um, learning how to use the right musculature, to, you'd, you'd actually be able to draw back. Mm-hmm. I always thought that on a compound bow, that when you draw back, that it just sits there, like you could take your hand off. Yeah, I didn't realize that you have to provide some additional, like ongoing tension. Yeah, sighting up on it, you know, bringing the mind's focus to such a little narrow mm-hmm. cone of attention, and then there's a, I think it's the contrast between that stillness a decision and then in, you know, ballistic movement mm-hmm. and then it's, and it's gone. Like arrow leaves the bow like that. That's it. You've, you've set it all up and um, yeah, it just feels amazing. It's, I, it's very, it's very hard to describe because a, I'm brand new to it. B it's so kinest, it's all kinesthetic, right? I'm not sure there's a word to describe all of that and how good it feels, but it, it feels so good. So you, you've been incredibly gracious. You gave me a bow and I'm going to be, Using that thing in my yard. That's good. Yeah, yes. absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be at it, if not every day, very close to it. Mountain Ops has been my go-to supplements for the past seven years. My exclusive Keep Hammering line of products offers a blended protein powder, BCAs, and a pre-workout that I take every day. I also use their greens, reds, and they actually have a new hydration product called Hydrate that I use before every run. Mountain Ops has been a great partner over the years, and I especially love all they do to give back to the community. Every purchase made on the Mountain Ops website gives back to a family in need. They also give away a ton of different hunting opportunities. They even gave away an elk hunt and a deer hunt at one of my most cherished hunting spots in Utah. If you listen to the podcast, you also get 20% off by using code CAM, that's C-A-M, at www.mountainops.com. Did you know that there's a, a quote that says the hitch, history of archery is a history of mankind? I didn't know that. Yeah, Fred Bear. And it's, uh, it's just a lot of people, not unlike you, um, that you've tried other things and they didn't resonate like today did. But it's like it feels natural for some reason mm-hmm. because man has been bow hunting for a long time. So it's like, even though it's foreign to you specifically, it feels familiar somehow when you do it or powerful or like, this is what I'm supposed to do. Why it does that? I have no idea. I just know that it does. And I've seen, I've seen people react the way you're reacting to it right now. And Joe was one of them. Um, and it's just, it's just something that I don't know if can be described succinctly or I don't know. I don't know if there is a way, but it's other than man has hunted. We, we're, you know, we're born to hunt. Mm-hmm. Some people don't do it. You don't have to. You can ha- you can buy food, but man, when you're immersed in it, it's uh, it's not only life changing, but it just feels like this is what this is what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've shot rifles, shot pistols before, mm-hmm. and enjoyed that, but it didn't resonate for me in the same way. I didn't feel connected to, you know, the mechanics of it in the same way. I haven't done a lot of it, but Mm -hmm. so maybe need to do more. But I think with the, with archery, with the bow that, you know, I realize I'm loving every step. I love how that little arc, what do you call that thing comes up? The rest. The rest kind of comes up slow and you're like, Mm -hmm. here we go. (laughs) And then, you know, and then trying to, you know, take the right positioning with feet and arms and back and all that. And yeah, breathe, but get into a position where you can make adjustments. And then, yeah, there's something about that contrast between stillness and then so much motion. Yeah. And you have to be relaxed. 
So mm-hmm. you, you have to be calm, relaxed, and precise back here. And then, as you said, it's just like, not an explosion, but a release of the arrow. Yeah. And then you didn't, you, you, wait, wait till you experience the arc of that arrow. So once we get to distance with your, with your bow and arrow setup, there's that release. And then you watch the arrow arc and then hit home. And that is like, we were close today, so it's hard to see that arc and appreciate that. But when you get to distance and you can watch that, and that's, that's like the closure of that, that repetition, there's nothing like it. That's why I like, you know, once we get out of distance, we put the balloon up and then you can watch it and you see the arrow arc and then hit and there's that immediately, or that immediate indication that my arrow went where it was supposed to. It's, it's incredible. But yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you're so enamored with the. Process. Oh, I'm I'm completely taken. You know, if anyone's listening to this and thinking, oh, it's just because he's there, like, I'm completely taken by the experience. <laughs> I'm thinking about it more now. You know, one of the things that I'm absolutely obsessed with is time perception and how mm-hmm. elastic our perception of time is. And when we get our eyes into a narrow area, our phone, or like think about a watchmaker, you're paying a lot of attention to something. Even like, you know. I was watching the gentleman at the shop to remind me his name. Trent. Trent, I apologize, Trent. You know, making some adjustments to calibrate the bow. You know, you're getting into that narrow cone of attention. It's almost like things are in slow motion right before you leave, release the arrow. So Mm -hmm. you're, you know, you bring your cone of attention in and in small visual areas, we know that you can register very small movements. That's kind of a duh. And that's because you're taking lots of, visual frames. It's like frame rate's high, which means slow motion. Like when you see slow motion of a dunk, that's because frame rate was high. Yeah, high speed. But then you go into this totally different frame rate when you release the arrow. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, and it's just spectacular. And, and I think it does something. I think it really did, does cause my brain and people who like this feeling, uh, the brain to go, wow, like it's, you know, and, and it's, related to your movements and your steadiness and all that. So mm-hmm. I'm totally, totally taken, you know, smitten. smitten. Well, and I like, cause you, cause you're so busy and you have so much going on and, you know, usually it's like this intellectual type areas where you're operating. Right. But I like that when you, you were shooting that your bow today, it's like, that's all you could be thinking about. You couldn't be solving these world problems or answering these questions from these people or educating as you do as a professor. It was like, it was all this, all like, okay, what do I need to do to release this arrow and hit where I want to hit? That's it. You can't, there's nothing else that can come into the equation to make you the best at doing that. And that's what, that's what I love about it is it's like, you know, people say it's therapeutic or it's meditative like, but it's, you just have to be all in on it to do it right. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's powerful. Yeah. There aren't a lot of things that can bring us into the present and keep us there, mm-hmm. you know, and until we set it down, um, you know, that the amazing thing about the human brain is that we can think about the past, the present or the future or a combination of past and present or present and future. It's hard to think about all three at once. Right. But, you know, I think we imagine that, and you hear that people, you know, they focus too much on the future, future tripping future. I don't think we do that as much as, people think. Mm. I think we are rarely thinking about the future as much as people claim. And I think it's rare that we are fully present. I think we tend to think about the past a lot. Too much? Too much. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about it, the the best life is to remember the past if you need to, but to have the future pull you forward, mm. you know, and, 
and to be present in each day. I mean, I really believe that the unit of the day is the functional unit mm -hmm. to really, you know, anchor oneself to the sunrise, the sunset, sleep at night. Mm -hmm. um, what are you going to accomplish that day? Right. Maybe even need to divide the day into thirds, but at least the unit of the day. Mm -hmm. And then the unit of the week, you know, is not a coincidence and um, that we follow that. And, but, you know, the moment you start trying to think about what you're going to do for more than a week, maybe something yeah. you're going to do down the line, you put it on the calendar, but you can't really impact things out that far mm -hmm. except what you do right now. Yeah. So I love, you know, the keep hammering slogan, mantra, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. law of nature for you. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, applies because it's it's that in, incessant like now now mm -hmm. now you want to be better next year you now what are you going to do today mm -hmm. and so i think archery clearly brings you into the moment there's mm -hmm. no question i feel the only thing that's ever you know uh not the only thing but something that also brings me right into the moment is when i do my solo podcast mm. it's always just me and rob in the room right when i think about what i need to accomplish at the beginning I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Mm -hmm. I always allow myself four pages of one-sided notes, no teleprompter, despite what people say. Mm -hmm. And then I'm right as we start, I'm looking at the little bead in the camera, the little, and I'm, I always just think, oh my God, I don't know what to do. And then you just, <laughs> you start segmenting. Yeah. Do the intro, do this, do this, do this. When you hit the end, you're like, well, that's how you do it. You break it down. It's sort of the, how do you eat the elephant one bite right. at a time? So I think with archery, I also loved that, um, I love the sequence of steps is so mm -hmm. fixed. Mm -hmm. I loved that. Yeah. Well, it's like, like knocking the arrow. Yeah, just putting the, putting the arrow in, mm -hmm. you know, you know, I heard, you know, you dry fire it once you destroy the bro. Great. <laughs> yeah. I love rules. Right. Cause it's like, there you go. I'm never going to drive. Mm -hmm. So I was really slow as you know, so I'm like checking every time. I love that the, like the details and how those matter, but I love it when there's a fixed sequence. Cause I do believe that, you can break things down into a sequence. Well, then you can get better at each piece and each piece getting better will help you improve. And yeah. But I know at the end of the day, it's also just reps, mm -hmm. quality reps. Right. You yeah. Know? Like with anything, Definitely. podcasting, running, lifting. I mean, you know, people always probably ask you too, like, you know, what does it take to get really good at something? It's like about 10 years of reps yeah. and then just keep going yeah. and going and going. Yeah, I mean, people have asked if I ever get tired of running the same, because I run Pisgah every day. I ask if I ever get tired of it, and I'm, I don't. I don't even think about it like, oh, I'm tired of this. It's just like, this is just what I do. It's just like, there is no, I, I don't, it, it just seems weird to me to be bored with something like that, because it's, that's not even part of, of, that's not an option. It's like, no, I, I need to run the mountain because I need to get a thousand foot of gain every time I climb to the top of this hill. So where, what it looks like or what it feels like doesn't really matter. It's, I'm achieving what I need to do for the day. It's so, non-negotiable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What, what is the least amount of sleep you've ever run Pisco on? Oh, I've not, I've not slept many times. And, and you run. still force yourself oh, to do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never, I mean, yeah, just like everybody, I had COVID a couple of times. I never ran less than 10 miles, no matter what day I had, what day of COVID I had. It's just like, I'm running 10 miles. I don't give a shit about anything. So that's, I don't miss date. I mean, it doesn't matter what happened. You're a beast. I love it. I think non-negotiables are the best. Deadlines are the best. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have a career for one deadline. I wouldn't have my degrees. I wouldn't, I mean, deadlines are the only thing that, that work for me. Yeah, I was gonna, I was, so I, I mean, I just wanna hear 
you, I mean, I know, I know people have asked you this many times, but so your story of the Andrew Huberman journey, all I know, you know, I follow you, I see what you do, but I had never seen like the impact in person of you uh, like I did last night. So Thursday night, University of Oregon, from five to about eight, Andrew Huberman is going to be speaking. And uh, it was packed. They said, okay, only I was out there, you know, before you got there, I was out in the hall and they said, they announced only 500 people can come in. So once it's full, doors are closed. People started streaming in. They went in, got in there and they said, oh, looks like maybe maybe 10 more people could come in, but there was more people than 500 on a Thursday night, you know, young college kids that want to come hear you speak. That is, you know, other than maybe like a, a Taylor Swift or a, I don't even know who, but a scientist. That's kind of I weird, mean, right? I, does that feel weird to you or are you so used to it now? Cause you, I mean, you've been teaching for a while. You've been at Stanford for years. Um, are, is, are you used to it? Because to me, it seems like crazy to think that kids would voluntarily go to hear a scientist speak. Yeah, it, I'm definitely not used to it. I mean, I taught undergraduates when I was a junior professor. We say junior professor before you get tenure. Mm. Uh, tenure is really, you know, you do a certain amount of work in a given area and you get essentially, tenure is basically academic freedom. You can still lose your job. People think like it's how long does it take to be tenured? Uh, depends. I mean, anywhere from five to 10 years after you start your faculty position at places like Stanford and, um, some of the other, you know, uh, t top, top tier universities, it can take even longer hmm. than 12, 15 years sometimes. Mm -hmm. So my goal, I mean, without getting into my full backstory right now, we could talk about it if you want, but my goal, once I decided to like get my life in order, mm -hmm. <laughs> which was when I was 19, um, was to get my PhD by the time I was 30, to get a faculty position by the time I was 35 and to get tenure by the time I was 40. Mm. And I wrote it down. Why, I, why was that? The, I mean, where'd that goal come from? Yeah, so I can kind of back this up and then we can kind of get to what I think might be going on in terms of the interest in science and, mm -hmm. and the podcast. But, um, but I'm definitely not used to it, you mm. know, because podcast started in January 21. So we're about three years in. Prior to that, I did a year of going on podcasts Mm -hmm. Rogan, uh, Lex Friedman, Ritual, et cetera. But prior to that, I put a few things out on the internet in 2019. And prior to that, I was just completely underground, no social media mm -hmm. where I had it, but I post pictures of my dog kind of yeah. thing. So Costello. yeah, miss him. Well, yeah. today, multiple times on that ruck, I was just thinking about some of the harder hikes that Costello and I had taken and how he overheat because he was a bulldog mastiff mm -hmm. and, and how you just, like, <sighs> yeah, you know, and I just, come on, let's do this. Let's do this. You know? And, um, I was thinking, man, he, he really put out the effort for me. Yeah. Yeah. Bulldog will die for you. They're, they're, they're lazy as hell. Mm -hmm. And anyone who owns a bulldog knows that he, he didn't have an underbite. So he had a like, you know, traditional, um, bite so he could breathe a little bit better, mm -hmm. but the bulldog relationship to its owner is they'll, they'll absolutely die for you. Hmm. And I, you know this cause when you have one, they face the door, whenever you have people over, they love a crowd, but they always face the open door. Hmm. And then someone comes through that door, they're friendly, Checking but if, you, if they sense that you don't like them, hmm. they'll just get right between you and anything. He got between me and an AT, a giant ATV on the beach. Hmm. Once, 
It looked like the Tiananmen Square picture. Yeah. This was no small ATV. Right. This was a giant thing. And they were just laughing. And they'd move toward him, and he'd move toward them. Hmm. This is a vehicle. Run him over. Yeah. That's how dumb they are, and yet how brave they how are. How loyal right? they are. Yeah. They're super loyal. So um, the, the quick version of the backstory is that, you know, my dad's a scientist. Um, so I grew up knowing what science was. He, he was a physicist. And um, I had a pretty traditional upbringing, two parents at home. I got a sister three years older than me. We'd sit around the dinner table every night. TV was off. Um, it's a pretty wholesome environment for the most part. You know, I was fortunate in that. Was there pressure to be a sci- to be to make something of yourself? No, I think early on they were worried about me because I was obsessive about learning. Mm. So when I was like six, I'd spend all my time in you know pet stores cataloging all the fish. I was obsessed with medieval weapons, so this is kind of interesting mm. that you know yeah. pull around to today with the archery. And then I would go into class, and I would ask if I could give lectures in class. When you were six? When I was seven or eight. Mm. Uh, and they let me do it because otherwise I wouldn't shut up. Mm-hmm. And um, my voice back then was the same it is now. My nickname was Froggy when I was a kid. Mm. I have a, a mutation that affects my adrenals that um, actually I had hair on my Adam's apple when I was a little kid. Mm. So I was like this little like man, like professing, right? Did they make fun of you? Oh yeah, I got teased, Froggy. Yeah, you know, Froggy, Froggy. And... Um, I was obsessive about Legos and I was obsessive about fish and I was obsessive about biology and learning. I love the encyclopedia, Guinness Book of Worlds, right? And I would just be talking about it all the time. What and, would your lectures be on that, stuff like that? Yeah, I'd say, you know, like today we're going to talk about the cichlids. These are African fish that when the pond shrinks, they get aggressive and it has to do with a hormone. And then I, I explained what a hormone, I was like nine at that mm-hmm. point, you know, it's kind of, it was weird, mm-hmm. right? You know, it was weird, like by today's standards, they probably would have said, oh, you know, he's on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. but I had friends. I was socially connected. Mm-hmm. Not that kids on the spectrum can't be, but I was socially well, well connected, but I always loved learning things. And then I couldn't help myself, but share the information. Mm. So that was a big part of my childhood. And so my parents, I think were less concerned about that than they were the fact that, um, you know, they just kind of couldn't bring that energy to a, to a calm resting place. I was mm-hmm. just constantly foraging for information and sharing it. Mm-hmm. And I did some sports. I played soccer and swam like every kid in my area, but I was not a good athlete. And even though I had the voice thing, I wasn't particularly strong or lean or anything. It was, you know, um, it, life proceeded pretty normally. And then when I turned about 13, 14, my parents got divorced. It was a, unfortunately a very high conflict divorce. Mm. I mean, I love them both. I've reconnected with both of them in real ways. But I would say you take the list of all the things that parents shouldn't do in a divorce. Mm-hmm. They basically did them all. Hey guys, you want to be as smart as famed neuroscientist Andrew Huberman, PhD at Stanford? Well, sadly, that's probably not going to happen. But I did find something that can help, and that's HVMN Ketone IQ. I actually downed one right before reading this. So if I sound decent, it's probably why. Because I'm not sure if you guys realize how much brain power podcasting takes. But whatever I can take that will at least make me sound smarter, I'm in. Ketone IQ is a clean energy boost without sugar or caffeine. Ketone IQ increases your blood ketones. I'm not on a keto diet, but by taking Ketone IQ, I can achieve the desired focus and energy for explosive workouts that ketones typically provide to those in ketosis. You can find Ketone IQ at your local Sprouts or online at hvmn.com. Use code CAM, 
C-A-M for 20% off your first order. So, you know, at that age, what happened was I, there wasn't a lot of parental oversight at that point. My dad was out of the picture largely. My mom was really struggling to, with the whole change in our family structure. My sister was out of the house. And I, you know, at that time I was getting really interested in skateboarding. Mm-hmm. And so that's a sport where you don't need parents around. It's also a sport where you have people of all ages, mm-hmm. you know? So I started going up really young, hanging out with skateboarders, going up to San Francisco to different city than it is now. And there was this place called Embarcadero, the EMB. How did you get there? We'd take the 7F bus or we'd just hop in a car with a guy who was like 16 and had his license and mm-hmm. went, you know, that was kind of how skateboarding worked. And to be really clear, I wasn't very good at skateboarding. I wasn't bad, but I wasn't good. And I kept injuring myself. My body hadn't gotten strong yet. Mm. And, you know, I had hit puberty on time, but it was a long, slow puberty. You know, like I didn't mm-hmm. start shaving till I was out of college, mm. but I'd hit puberty when I was 14. Right. So in those years, I was what could only be described as just like feral, wayward youth. Mm-hmm. Um, I was truant a lot. So I wasn't going to school. Um, mainly avoided drugs and alcohol. I smoked a little weed, this kind of thing, but started getting in fights. I saw a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Saw a lot of fights, got a fast education. Mm-hmm. You know, some of those kids, Embarcadero was filled with great people, but also some criminals and sociopaths, saw a lot of beatdowns. I saw murder, not there, but you know, elsewhere, like right in front of me, like, mm-hmm. whoa, see someone stabbed and killed right in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I wasn't going to school very much. And I started getting in trouble and eventually I ended up in youth detention. Mm-hmm which really woke me up, right? The moment that key closes, you're like, oh, mm-hmm. I'm messed up. I called my team manager because I'd been put on a skateboard sponsor, mostly out of sympathy. Like I said, it wasn't very good. Yeah, I was like, hey, you got to help me out. I'll never forget what he said. Steve Ruge, who's a great guy, I'm still in touch with him, said to me, he goes, man, I can barely take care of myself. <laughs> and he goes, and guess what? You're the most normal guy I know. <laughs> and I thought, oh my goodness, like I'm really in trouble. Yeah. Anyway, I eventually got out. But while what I was- What were your in, parents doing? To, I mean, were they weighing in on any oh of Oh yeah, they'd show up because once a week you could get visitors. Mm-hmm. And they and the people who ran the place were really good people. Mm-hmm. They were trying to sort out what was going on at home. Mm-hmm. You know, they're wondering all sorts of things. Is there physical abuse? Is there sexual abuse? And fortunately for me, none of that happened, mm-hmm. right? But they realized that I was not, I was pretty neglected. Mm-hmm. That's the reality was there, no one could take, was in a position to take care of me and give me what I needed. Were you lonely? At that time I was because, you know, my community of sk- friends in skateboarding were great, but they weren't equipped to deal with this. Yeah. Even the older guys we knew, some mm-hmm. of whom I'm still in touch with. One of them who I really adore, and he's a close friend now is Jim Thebo, who's kind of, you know, one of these guys who really had his act together early, mm-hmm. married his high school girlfriend, and like he took care of the community. But, and he gave me some books, encouraged me to write. He had written some poetry books and he was like, right, you know, kind of get your thoughts down. But that was, you know, that wasn't going to um, get me where I needed to go, but it really helped, mm. you know, and in some ways it was really a lifeline. Mm. Um, so I always journaled. And then when I got out, a condition to being let back in school is that I would do therapy. Now mm. this is like late eighties, early nineties. No one did therapy. Right. The movie Goodwill Hunting hadn't happened, you know, <laughs> yeah. none of that, none of that. And so I would secretly go to this therapist cause I was so embarrassed mm-hmm. and he was a real, really smart guy. And, um, and he said, listen, you're very physical. I think you need to learn to take care of your body. You keep getting hurt. Mm-hmm. So I sought out a football coach in my school and started lifting weights mm. uh, a little bit. I started running a little bit. 
And unlike skateboarding where you hit the concrete all the time and you're getting hurt, those sports were more, or activities were more effort-based. So I was like, hey, the more I run, the further I can run. I eventually ran cross country for a year. I was not, again, not a good athlete, but I, I started taking better care of my body. Mm-hmm. Now, unfortunately in that time, I also, I got a great girlfriend, but then we started getting into some more serious trouble. We kind of started dabbling in drugs and things like that. And uh, she had a tough situation at home. We drank too much mostly. But, you know, by the time I got to my senior year of high school, she had graduated because she was a year earlier uh, ahead of me, went to UC Santa Barbara, and I was going down to visit her. And just, she was like my family. Mm-hmm. And then I, I realized, you know, I, I don't want to let her go. You know, I don't, I don't want, I loved her. She's amazing. I'm like, I want to be with her. So I started taking fire science classes um, my senior year of high school. I figured I'd be a firefighter. I'm physical. I like hanging out with a big crew of guys. Like at that time, it was mostly guys. Like it's service to the community. Seems like a good fit. Great career. And somehow, I don't know how, Cam, somehow I got into UC Santa Barbara. Hmm. I mean, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'll just say it because I haven't been crystal clear about it before. What I'm about to say, I do not recommend. But the morning of my SAT, my mom, who was at home at that point, said, hey, you got to go into school and take the SAT. I'd taken a half hit of acid the night before. Mm. I didn't sleep. Don't take LSD when you're kids, kids. Just don't take LSD, period. Mm-hmm. So I, I go in and I just start, I'm, you know, um, I fill out my name, mm-hmm. fill out the other information, and then I start filling out bubbles, filling out bubbles. Not even reading the questions no, or what? No, just filling, making pictures with the bubbles, basically. Mm. It could have only been, and I'm serious here, it could have only been divine intervention that I cracked a thousand on the SAT. I cracked a thousand. I wrote a decent enough essay about my life, which was honest, mm-hmm. and they let me in. Wow. So I go to UC Santa Barbara, uh, and this is a great opportunity, right? I'm going to college. She's there. I completely blow it. Mm. I get there. I'm like, this is like a free-for-all. Like, I you know, I'd already been in environments where there were no rules. All these kids are like away from home for the first time. And I'm like getting in fights. I'm spending all my time at the gym or I got really into Thai boxing. Mm. Um, I was just a complete knucklehead. Right. Mm. And she and I would split up, get back together. Anyone she dated, I'd get into fights. It, we was just a mess. Right. Yeah. By the end, yeah. And then at the end of my senior year, I actually got into enough trouble that I was banned from going within a 200 yard radius of the, of the dormitories. Mm. So I was like, look, this isn't working. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna move home. So I moved home and went to community college, but the summer before the summer between that first year. And when I moved home, July 4th, 1994, I go to a party with a bunch of friends and there's some guys like ripping off the house. So what do you do? You beat them up, right? Cause if you're, knucklehead like I was four back guys. then four guys so I get into a fight with all these guys this huge melee bunch of people in the street you know and luckily I didn't get hurt no one got killed or stabbed although it got really tense you know and I did fine I stayed up you know mm-hmm. I wasn't some sort of tough guy but like I'd been in enough fights that you know it's you know I mean there's some things that you can do like not tell people you're gonna hit them yeah just hit you Catch know those kind of yeah. yeah but listen I had already had one friend get cold cold cocked at a bar and ended up with permanent motor cortex damage. He still walks with a limp today. Hmm. So, you know, fights, we think, Oh, you know, you know, boys will be boys, but you can be brain damaged or someone Mm -hmm. can pull out a gun or a knife. So after that, I went home 
to where I was squatting. I was squatting in a empty home that, at that summer in Santa Barbara. And I realized I'm like, I'm, I'm officially a loser, mm -hmm. right? I'm 19 years old. Girlfriend and I are split up. I screwed up my first opportunity or the opportunity to get a college education. I'd gotten straight C's and D's my first year. Mm -hmm. If I even got that, mm -hmm. I already been to youth detention once, but now I'm 19. I'm delivering bagels. I don't like the guy who owns the bagel shop. I have a bad attitude. Like I'm officially a loser. Did you, did you, I mean, is that, did you accept that, that you're a loser? Yeah. Or did you think that I'm capable so much more, I just need a break? What yeah. was your mindset? I think I was in a bitterness about what had happened in my family life. Mm -hmm. I think I was angry, to be honest, that like I wasn't good at anything. I was like, I'm not good at skateboarding. I'm like, and I mean, it, like, wah, mm -hmm. you know? Victim. And, you know, victim yeah, victim, mentality. like victim mentality. And, I, you know, I knew I had a strong drive and a, and a capacity to do things. But I kept thinking, you know, who's going to be the great teacher that's going to get me excited about a, a subject? And I actually wrote a two-page letter to my mom. I still have it. Hmm. Where I said, you know, this is it. I'm turning it around. I don't care if the teachers are good. I'm going to just do the work. And blah, 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 blah. And a bunch of stuff. I, you know, about Did anybody tell you you were intelligent? or Because right now people, if they think of you now you're like one of the most intelligent people they know of. They listen to you. You're just like, you could throw any topic out and you have some amazing answer. Did you feel intelligent then? Did anybody tell you you're, you're smart? No. Loophole Optics has been providing my binoculars and eyewear for the last few years. I like that it's an Oregon company and they make such high quality glasses, all I've really used. And if you can't find what you're hunting, it's going to be tough to kill. So Leupold Optics has really played an integral part in my success these last few years. Thank you, Leupold, for supporting the podcast. I had some carryover from when I was younger that I have a really good memory. And then when mm -hmm. I'm excited about something, mm -hmm. I really throw myself into it. Mm. Um, but, you know, I don't, no one told me I was dumb. Mm -hmm but I didn't have anything to show for my time. All I had was this story about how things went wrong. Mm -hmm. And that was really the, the switch in my head. It was when you're young, people can say, oh my God, you poor kid, you know, all this stuff happened. And, you know, I'm not getting into the details of my home life early on. It, it was, you know, at from about 13 to 18, it was super dark. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were times when I go home and I was just completely alone. And, you know, and I lived in a community where that wasn't common. So it was easy to hide. But I had friends whose parents, you know, I'd go to their house and eat dinner with them. Or my mom was doing the best she could, you mm -hmm. know. And, and I really, I want to be clear, you know, she, it, her idea of family was nuclear family, two parents, the kids. And when that fell apart, I think she just went into a tailspin. Yeah, gave and up hope a little bit. Yeah, it was just a total tailspin. Mm -hmm. So I think what happened that summer after that July 4, 1994, and sort of funny because you know, not that I worry if people believe the stories or not, but recently there are a couple very well-known musicians and people that were actually at that, that became well-known mm. people in the world who talked about it on other podcasts, you know, and um, I had a reputation after my freshman year being the guy that was fun to have at a party because I was going to, it was going to be a fight or we'd get mattresses up on the roof and set them on fire and then jump onto them. Like I was just the wild. Crazy guy. Yeah, I was wild. Yeah. Before there was jackass, there was like everybody that was doing that anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, crazy stuff. Yeah. So, you know, that, that letter was really about like enough is enough. And actually looking back, I realized just now, I mean, 
that was me parenting myself. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm going to be a good parent to myself because no one else can control me. Right. My parents might have tried. So but, the letter was to your mom, but yeah. it was really to you. Yeah. It was like, hey, listen, whatever has gone on in your past, it's going to mean nothing to the world unless you clean your act up now. Mm -hmm. So I moved home and I went to Foothill College, which was a community college. And when you move home to community college, you're with all the kids that didn't leave. Yeah. You're with the kids in high school that didn't leave. And most of them are, it's a commuter school. No one lives there. And I would say most of them at, the, at that time uh, weren't staying. They were like do, taking a couple classes and then leaving. Mm -hmm. um, but I will say this um, because I think people here, I'm at Stanford. I'm a tenured Stanford professor. I'm a huge fan of the community college system. I mean, it's extremely inexpensive compared to university. Because I think and, some people feel like that's a failure and some, you know, they, they yeah. didn't get into the four-year school and now they got to go to community college. Or they college, can't afford it. Or they yeah. can't afford it. Yeah. Or maybe their grades weren't good enough. Yeah. Yeah. And so they need to go get an associate's or something. But you're there with 40-year-old moms, yep. you know, and it's like some kids feel like it's a fail, right. failed experiment. Right. And they have to settle for community college. Yeah. Well, I think also I'd spent so little time in high school that I didn't have the basics. Mm. So... I got a great education at Foothill for two quarters. Mm -hmm. It was on the quarter system. I took art history. I took some psychology, some biology. And I'm like, that's it. Like, I can do this. Mm -hmm. I can, if I, you know, I started working really hard, memorizing my textbooks, working really hard. I go to the gym. I always reacted well to the weights, you know, and my body could grow quickly. I was still running, lifting. And I started studying for real. And I was like, okay, I'm pretty good at this. If I study, it's kind of interesting. Everyone thinks school is so hard. They tell you what you need to know. Yeah. I mean, sometimes the tests are hard or the lectures are difficult to parse, but they have office hours where if you go, they'll explain what they meant if you didn't understand. I mean, it doesn't get any, any easier than that in life. Right. It's time consuming, but it doesn't get any easier than that. The challenge can be balancing, you know, too many classes. Mm -hmm. So for sure. And some classes are downright hard. Yeah. But I decided... This is it. So I, I be quickly became a straight A student at the community college. And then I decided to go back to Santa Barbara because I'd taken a leave of absence. So they let me back in, even though I wasn't allowed within 200 <laughs> yards of some of the classrooms, I had to kind of say, can I come into just this classroom? Yeah. And I was some mess. And people reacted very strangely. They thought, you know, who's this guy now? You know, he left. He was this kind of like wild one, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, someone sent me some pictures from my time in Santa Barbara recently. And I think the, the one, like I always had a shaved head back then and I had like a can of WD-40 and was like blowing like, On you know, flame. flames. Yeah. We were just wild. It was like, where's the activity? And um, I come back and I live in a studio apartment by myself. Hmm. And I, no joke, it was sit down, set the timer. I'm going to study. I allow myself to listen to Rancid, still my favorite band by a long shot, or Bob Dylan. And I wouldn't even let myself get up to use the bathroom unless that timer buzzed. And how long was the timer? Usually two hours at a time, which sucks if and you're drinking was, coffee. And that was studying? Studying. So I would do, I would do four two-hour blocks mm. and just go. Eight hours a day? At least eight hours a day. I'd allow myself to lift, allow myself to run, and mm. to eat, of course. Mm -hmm. who, and, paid, who paid for the apartment? Yeah, so that that's a good, that's a good question. So I was very fortunate that... I got some support from my dad mm -hmm. who at that point was kind of like, listen, it's do or die for you. And I should have mentioned this earlier, you know, as an academic, I thought, you know, like there was a part of me back then where I was like, F you, you know, like, like, where were you when I need you? You know, yeah, like, like, right. you know, where were you kind yeah. of thing? 
and he and I have since worked out our stuff. We're close, mm -hmm. but you know, he was like, listen, you have a great opportunity with the public education system. You know, I actually said, I want to go to Whitman. I want to become a journalist and it's this mm -hmm. private school up in Walla Walla, Washington. I'm going to mm -hmm. be a journalist. And he looked at the tab, like how much it was going to cost. He goes, how are you going to pay for it? Yeah. And, uh, and so I said, would you pay for it? He goes, no. And that actually was the right thing for him to do. He's mm -hmm. like, I want you to go to a big school, big place with public education. My taxes have been paying for this mm -hmm. and go. So I got some help from him and I worked. So you, you basically you humbled yourself enough to accept his help That's because right. some kids would have said, no, I don't want anything to do with you. Fuck you. Right. And he was an academic. And I thought at one point I was like, I'm not going to be an academic because, you know, because you, you are, because you That's are, what you want. And I realized it was going to be self-defeating, mm -hmm. you know, cut off your nose to spite your face kind of thing. So I also earned some income working at a supplement store. Mm. It's kind of funny, I, mm -hmm. you know, near a gym because I could study when people weren't in there. Mm -hmm. So, and I got free gym, gym membership. Nice. So I was able to, to, you know, support part of my, my requirements, you know, mm -hmm. my, my life, life expenses. And I decided I don't care who the teacher is or how much they annoy me. I'm going to be in the front row mm -hmm. and I'm going to ace these classes. Like, and so I became kind of a beast. Mm. I would academic beast. academic beast. It was like, I just put everything I had into getting the top score you know my girlfriend back then and we're still in touch she's happily married and we talk every once in a while she was like i she's like i created a monster because mm -hmm. she was much more studious than i was oh and she had grown up in a home where she raised horses mm -hmm. and you, you know as you know probably people who raise horses like have to do hard work yeah. shovel manure Chores. horses get colic you know like it's hard work like she, yeah. she was a physically hard worker and, and worked hard. Mm -hmm. And her dad only had a seventh grade education and made something of himself coming to this country, yeah. you know? So we started seeing each other again, which was good. Um, but it was all about getting my life in order at that point. And mm -hmm. at one point I met a guy, uh, his name was Harry Carlisle, and he uh, was an ex-Navy guy who was a neuroscientist, believe it or not, mm -hmm. a physiologist. And he worked on how the body reacts to cold, mm -hmm. cold thermogenesis. Yeah. And I started working in his lab and that was it. I was like, now there's a hands-on piece, mm -hmm. you know, we're doing experiments, injecting rats and cutting up their brains and, you know, doing, and I was like, man, this is really good. Like, and I it just, you know, it built on itself. Yeah. I would still go Got out some of momentum, get some momentum. And he was the one who said, you know, you're pretty good at this. You should go to graduate school. They pay you in the sciences to go to graduate school. Mm -hmm. And so I applied to Berkeley and Princeton. Don't ask me why, <laughs> but, um, I did grad, I eventually graduated with, with honors, um, you know, and took neuroanatomy, which was my, was a hard course, did well in that. Um, Were you seeking out the hardest courses or just courses that interested you? Courses that interest me, especially the courses like that you had, like you liked the challenge of part of this. Like yeah. you said, you wanted the front row, highest grade. Maybe those courses were the the most reputation, the most difficult there was. I don't know. Yeah. Well, like there was a course in neural development and it, I got a B plus and it still pisses me off. Mm -hmm. And the guy that taught it, Ben Reese was the toughest professor. And I loved it. I was like, man, like, like I love this stuff. I was at, so I love the material. And a lot of those courses were really hard. Was he a tough professor? Like how, how, I mean, was he a beast too? Like you? Oh yeah. He taught, he, he taught, us as if we were adults. And so what you find is, and there are data on this, that, you know, the professors that crack a lot of jokes, mm -hmm. people like, but mm -hmm. they don't get 
as high respect ratings as the difficult professors that the are serious ones. Yeah. It's like, take, take your students seriously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think you can still have some fun and stuff, but I, I made a point to like, you know, later when I became a professor, you know, I don't swear in class. I keep the, you know, I keep it light and we, we have a conversation and make things relevant, but then we get serious. We're there to learn. Right. Is that part of the covering of the tattoos? It is. Just to keep it. I, I know I've heard you say you don't want to distract from mm -hmm. what you're teaching. So is that part of that whole thought process is like, I'm not joking around. We're being serious. I'm serious. Look, I'm not, you're not seeing any entertainment on my body it's or not, art. It's not relevant right now. Yeah, okay. And it's really out of respect for the students. Mm. Uh, you know, my dad, despite us having our differences over the years, you know, he always said, you know, if you show up a little bit overdressed to something, at least it shows that you had enough respect for mm -hmm. your hosts. And so in the, in the classroom setting, it's like, yeah, I respect them enough to say, Hey, listen, my life, my tattoos, what they mean. We could talk about some other time, maybe, or maybe not. But like right now, this is about me mm -hmm. teaching you. I'm here for them. I'm not in the classroom for me. I'm, although I enjoy it. So back then, Harry Carlisle was my favorite professor and he taught about, you know, depression, schizophrenia, dopamine, thermoregulation, feeding and hunger. He's a really brilliant professor. And then when I got into graduate school, I decided to go to Berkeley at the time. Now, my parents were very happy that I had turned my life around, but you know, I'll be honest, I, I hadn't worked out some of the demons. So I get to Berkeley and very quickly I ran into some trouble in my interpersonal life with my mm. girlfriend and I, you know, flailed on a statistics exam. Mm. I'm like, ah. Oh. And then it wasn't the right fit of a lab for me. I didn't make the right so choice. So you had a bachelor's and you were working on yeah. your master's? I was working on a PhD, but what oh. ended up happening was I ended up leaving Berkeley after a master's mm. and switching to UC Davis. Now, a lot of people at the time, including some folks at Davis said, what are you doing? You're in the PhD program at Berkeley. Berkeley's better, blah, blah. Another case where the top tier, the higher ranked school isn't always the best situation. Because mm. what happened was I went up to Davis on the recommendation of somebody that I, a professor at Berkeley and- I checked it out and I met this woman, Barbara Chapman, and something just felt right. I was like, I like her. I like the work she's doing. And she said, yeah, if you want to come to my lab, you could transfer here or start from scratch. Um, you know, she said, I'm going to have two kids. So I'm gonna, you're going to have the lab kind of to yourself, but I'll teach you what you need to know. What do you mean you're going to have two kids? She said she was going to have two children in the next couple of years. And so she, she lived planned in, already. And she lived in San Francisco and that was a two hour commute each way. And she said, you're going to have the lab most of yourself. So she knew she's going to be missing a, a lot yeah. of time. Yeah. And I thought, perfect. Because mm -hmm. for me, and this is what I ended up doing, I ended up moving up to Davis. So for anyone listening, if you think, oh, you know, why would you ever give up a Berkeley degree for a Davis degree? Well, if the right person to work with mm -hmm. is a Davis, if it hits that chord, that's the place to go. So I went to her lab and put tinfoil on the little window. At five o'clock, I'd lock the door, crank rancid so loud, and just did experiments nonstop for four years. Hmm. Nonstop. In fact, I was supposed to take my qualifying exam. And they were like, we're going to kick you out of the program if you don't take the qualifying exam. But I was so busy publishing papers. I was already publishing papers in really good journals. And finally, Barbara came to me and she's like, listen, I'm going to kick you out of the lab. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like, no, and I loved her so much. And I just was like, nothing, no, no, no. I loved the life. And she could just see that. I lived on black coffee, diet Mountain Dew, ugh, but it got me caffeinated. Mm -hmm. Cucumbers, ground beef, metrics, protein drinks, and just punk rock music. Like what, you know, what were the, what were your experiments? So at that time I was studying neural development, how the brain wires up. 
sort mm-hmm. of nature nurture type stuff in critical period development. Mm-hmm. So I was doing experiments on a little carnivore species called a ferret. Mm. They're actually a carnivore, not a rodent. They have binocular vision. So I was studying binocular vision. They're cool animals. They're real cool animals. Yeah. I mean, they're kind of stinky, kind of musty smell. Yeah, yeah. I kind of like the smell, but some people don't like it. One of my favorite packages that I get on a monthly basis is a Black Rifle Coffee Club exclusive coffee roast. The only way you can get it is if you subscribe to the coffee club. This month's coffee is a dark roast called Gothic Serpent. The exclusive coffee subscription gives you nothing but the best. It's a coffee of the month club where you get premium roasts from the best farms worldwide. Black Rifle Coffee is America's coffee. It's veteran owned and operated. They support hunting and conservation and give back immensely to the veteran community. They're offering followers of the podcast 20% off on your first purchase to the coffee club or order on their site using code KEEPHAMMERING to get America's coffee today. And they have an interesting visual system because it develops mostly out of the womb. So the the way biologists talk about them, they're like a half-baked kitty cat. So mm. a kitty cat gestation before a kitten comes out is about, about 63 days mm-hmm. or so. A ferret is essentially got a, a pretty complex brain. It's got the bumps, which means it's kind of a bumpy brain, it's a complex brain. They're highly visual and they have a 42 day gestation. So when those little pups come out mm-hmm. they're it's like being able to do embryology on an animal ex utero. It's a lot easier because it's not fully developed because it's not still in the mom and it's not still fully developed. Okay. Right. So I also started doing some work on fetal macaque monkeys which mm-hmm. something I didn't really enjoy, but I was really interested in certain questions that could only be addressed in a non-human primate. And Davis had a, a primate center still does. Mm. And I'll tell you, I loved doing experiments and I adored Barbara. Like what were the, like what would you do to it? Yeah, so physically, so what we were doing, I was injecting little tracer dyes into specific areas of the brain, looking at at anatomy, discovering new circuitry in the brain that people Mm. hadn't seen before. I developed this, um, a toxin labeling technique so that you could do multicolored labeling in the brain to see how pathways, not just to, but away from things. That was something I became known for. And then I also figured out how to um, introduce genes that from the jellyfish, which glow green, green fluorescent protein into ferrets. So I was making green glowing ferrets, but not just to make green glowing ferrets, but yeah. so that you could visualize specific neurons in the brain. I was also recording the electrical potentials of neurons in the- And what would that tell you? And I was learning a couple of things. First of all, how binocular vision develops, mm. how plastic or malleable binocular vision is depending on experience, something that has direct relevance to human ophthalmology and vision. And then I was also trying to discover the, the sort of genetics and molecules that allow a brain to wire up so precisely. I mean, if you think about it, it's wild. A sperm meets egg, starts duplicating, you get a bunch of cells mm-hmm. and you end up with a brain. Yeah. Wild. And that brain can be modified by experience like you have circuits in your brain specifically for bow hunting hmm. that others don't have hmm. clearly, mm-hmm. but all the wiring that's required for making sure that you breathe, digestion, heart rate, vision, all of that has to come online before you see anything. So we were figuring out some of the chemicals that guide neurons to one place or away from another place. And we had discovered there was a, a series of molecules that act as what are called repellents. They push neurons out of certain regions. Now, there are two ways to wire up a, a, a very detailed map in the brain of connections. One is to say, you, 
you go here and guide neurons to a place. The other is to say, don't go here. And what we discovered is that a lot of the brain wiring is by exclusion. You just say, you can't go here, can't go here. By default, they go to a given location. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did in Barbara's lab. And it went spectacularly well. I loved working for her, published a lot of papers and a lot of really good journals. And at that point I was like, was that like publishing a paper? That's a big deal, right? Yeah. So publishing a paper is the final step in any project. Project mm -hmm. starts with a question, ends with a publication. Mm -hmm. It's a long process, two to three year process. Typically most graduate students will be happy to publish one, maybe two first author papers where they really led the project. Um, and then there are different journals like Science Nature Cell. The rejection rates are about 99%. So 1% rejection uh, acceptance rate, excuse me, 1% acceptance rate. That may, that's published. That's published. And then other journals, maybe it's 75, 25 mm -hmm. and so on. And I was very, I was both lucky and very hardworking and I hit the, you know, timing right. And by the time I'd finished my PhD, I'd published eight, eight first author papers, including one in science. And, and that's one rare. in nature. And it's exceedingly rare. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'll say that, you know, most scientists will be lucky to publish one paper in nature or science in their career. And I've you know, been very lucky to have published, you know, I can't do the math right now. I'd have to go back to my CV, but probably five or six. Is it, is it a function of quality writing or the, the experiment itself? It's usually the discovery, the writing in the most scientific papers is pretty fractured and poor to be oh, okay honest. yeah All right. so it's, it's yeah it's a result of the experiment yeah. yeah so when i finished my phd i had really turned my life around mm -hmm. i was like okay I, you know i did it right i was like okay i i have a path i know what i want to do and then i went and did a five-year postdoc which is like a residency so where you're not taking any classes but you're just doing experiments i did that at stanford for five years for five years so how long have you been in school at this point? And I, oh gosh, I went, I left high school when I was 17 because I'm a fall baby. So my birthday's in September. So I was, you know, 17, 18 and, um, did five years as an undergrad. Cause I took the time at Foothill, two years as a master's, four year PhD, five year postdoc, five years as a junior professor, 12 years as a, as a tenured professor. Holy shit. So yeah, I, I've got a lot of time under my belt and, um, so, but this is one, so I'd, sorry, I'm, I, I got distracted by something. When you're talking about the brain and all the, I mean, you, you mentioned it last night and this, this had me thinking, it's like, when you think how all that works, I have to take an aside and say, how could that happen in nature is without a creator? Yeah. So, well, here's the thing. I mean, we know that the programs, meaning genes, so genes, DNA, and there's DNA, then there's RNA, and then there's proteins. And proteins are the action end of the game where they say, hey, like grow over here, don't grow over there, mm -hmm. you know, um, become this kind of cell, dopamine cell or a serotonin cell. We know that those mechanisms are incredibly well conserved from mice to humans. Now, mm -hmm. certain things happen in the human brain that you don't see in other species, like the elaboration of the parts of the brain that are involved in context and planning, mm -hmm. especially. But the memory systems, the ones that control hormones, breathing, heart rate, they're very similar. Mm -hmm. Not exactly the same, but very similar. Okay. When you start to study and understand brain development, as I did, or neuroplasticity, or dopamine, you have to Meaning, I don't care if you're an atheist, agnostic, 
or believer in creator. You have to step back and just go, wow, wow. Now, then of course, there's this difference among scientists as to who believes in God, who mm -hmm. doesn't. I'll just go on record. I'm very comfortable saying it. I believe in God. I do. Mm -hmm. I think there are many things that science can explain. Mm -hmm. There are certain things science can't explain, but I'll even go a step further, which is that all the elements of science are entirely compatible with the idea of there being a God. And I'm not the first scientist to say this. I mean, mm -hmm. Einstein believed in God. Um, Carl Jung, one of the greatest psychologists ever, clearly believed in God. There are many atheist scientists. There are agnostic scientists who are just kind of like unsure, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, I'm in absolute awe, absolute awe of biology. Mm -hmm. It's just incredible that we're sitting here having this conversation. It's just, it's with language that they're little sound yeah. waves that are, you're perceiving and understanding. I mean, it's just, and I think the brain represents the apex of incredible in terms of biology. Like the heart is interesting. The immune system is interesting. The liver is interesting. But the brain is unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, think about the number of different ways you can move your body compared to another species. Mm -hmm. Think about what you did today. Think about what I was attempting to do today, right? Yeah. Spectacular. Think about technology. These lights, the, you know, Tesla cars, spaceships. I mean, yeah. the internet. I mean, unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And yet, oh, so real. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, we could talk a bit about how I, you know, well, I'll just say this. Secretly, I've always prayed. I grew up in a split religion home. My mm -hmm. family's like the UN. We've got people from Guatemala, <laughs> uh, Denmark, Argentina, New York, like all the different political battles are in my family. Super left, super right, libertarians, mm -hmm. lefties to the, you know, yeah. it's crazy. Uh, Thanksgivings can be difficult. Yeah. But I'll say this, you know, I absolutely pray. Mm -hmm. I absolutely love that the idea, but also what for me is really a deep belief, which is that we can't control everything. We're not in as much control as we think we are. And that the magnificence of biology and the magnificence of, of nature is, um, it, it's, imp it's impossible to, for me to conceive how that could be come about any other way. It just is. Now, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, full stop. Who do you pray to? Uh, that's an interesting one because I think uh, God, mm -hmm. yeah. So I, I absolutely do. I've actually started reading the Bible recently, start mm -hmm. to finish. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like it's my duty to like learn and in some sense compare Old and New Testament. Mm -hmm. I, I'm like really, I'm really interested in the stories, but I'm also, I'm fascinated by the story of us, right? And, and the story of everything. And so, but yeah, I pray out loud in the morning, um, sometimes again in the middle of the night, if I wake up mm -hmm. and, um, and it's only recently that I've been doing this more often. It's given you yeah. peace. Or... Oh my goodness. It's given me so much. It's given me peace. And you know, it's going to sound weird and probably people are going to be like, what are you talking about? If you're this, it, it, it works. Mm -hmm. It works. There's a, there's a way in which certain things I was grappling with, you know, um, I just couldn't resolve. Mm -hmm. I couldn't do it. And it was all internal and I just couldn't do it. What, what, how were you trying to resolve these things? Like have an answer? Yeah, discipline myself. I mean, mm -hmm. it wasn't like I was super, uh, you know, undisciplined. I mean, obviously I have a lot of self-discipline, but yeah. you know, I, like I, I always pray, you know, I want to remove my defects of character. I want to, um, you know, I, I certainly pray for other people. 
Um, I, I mostly, you know, these days I pray for the ability to really harness as much care and love for other people and for myself, something I haven't been that good at mm -hmm. in my lifetime, um, in order to be able to put the best possible work into the world mm. to really serve. Like I really see myself as serving higher power. Mm -hmm. Like I'm a conduit. Right. Um, and the better I can do that, the better I'm serving, the better I'm serving, the more I feel connected to humanity. Do you think that with this, with this, I don't know if you've always felt like this, it sounds like it's more of a, a newer, newer feeling. But. Somewhat, although secretly, yeah. Like in Santa Barbara, I'll just say there's this place, Sands Beach, down at the end of the beach, if anyone's ever been there. And mm -hmm. I used to run down there once a week. I'd always did a long run, long for me, run yeah. on Sunday, yeah. minus a 72 pound rock. Right. And I would pray. Mm. And I just pray for, you know, be honest with myself, be honest with others. And that was years ago. I was 18. Oh, okay. 19, 20. So, um, and then, you know, I've seen some hardship along the way. I mean, I, would just mention that I've had three amazing scientific advisors. You know, Harry shot himself. Mm. Two weeks after I told him we published a paper in science, he said, come on down to Santa Barbara. It'd be great to take you out for pizza and celebrate. Mm -hmm. Two weeks later, he ate a bullet in the bathtub. Barbara died of cancer when she was 50. I'm mm -hmm. friends with her daughter. I, you know, saw her. She did have those two kids. <laughs> yeah. One's a neuroscientist. Oh, man. Um, at McGill. And um, she was like a mom to me. Mm-hmm. She died. I was speaking at her memorial. And then my postdoc advisor died. He was a pretty impressive guy in mm -hmm. his own right. And so at one point I'm thinking like, what's going on? You know, I'm right. the common denominator. Right. How am I picking these people? Mm -hmm. But they were amazing. And, you know, I had some friends commit suicide, you know, this kind of thing. And, and you know, you live long enough, that's going to happen. People are going to go. Mm -hmm. That's just the reality. Mm -hmm. But there were times I'm like, you know, it was dark. It was, you know, like, where am I? Why? Why me? And at those moments too, just accepting that there's a plan and it's happening for a reason and I don't know what it is and just putting my trust in that allowed me to, to grieve those things properly and to really try and, you know, I got the message, I got the download to take the lessons from them and just not waste a single day mm. and to do things that re I really felt mattered. Mm. So to me, it's all always been linked right. to you know, sort of forces greater than me, certainly. Does it feel like, you know, when I'm hearing all this, does it feel like once you've taken like the, a, a more, I don't know, intentional turn for being grateful and praying, you're not drinking since 2019, it seems like that's been in tandem with your success. Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, I always wanted to have a deeper relationship to, to God. I always wanted that. And mm -hmm. I kind of was like, why don't I have that? Well, duh. That's like saying, I want to be fit. Why well, I'm not, I'm not fit. Well, cause you're not running, you're not, not lifting, you're not doing the things. It was like, yeah. and it was a, um, a couple of different people that kept showing up in my life and, and, and they were doing it. And it was like, well, pray. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've learned, and I certainly try and do this, that a lot of prayers about listening mm. and a lot of prayers about you, you, ask for things or listen for things. And then an hour later, two days later, you go, wait, mm -hmm. 
like it doesn't happen in the moment necessarily, just like fitness. I don't right. want to compare fitness. I don't want to trivialize prayer by, by comparing to right. fitness, but there's some parallels that are relevant. Yeah. yeah. You, uh, it's right. consistent work. Yeah. It's consistent work. And then all of a sudden like things come up mm-hmm. and you're like, Oh my goodness, I can't believe it. That makes so much sense. Now, I think that the success of the podcast, first of all, I'm incredibly grateful for it. Incredibly grateful. But in many ways, I'm doing exactly what I was doing when I was that six, seven, eight, nine-year-old kid. I'm yeah. learning and sharing. So it was always in me. And it always felt like this energy, this thing, like, it's like, how did, how did I end up like this? How come all the other kids, like, don't have this? Mm-hmm. And how come sometimes it feels like a little bit of a, not a curse, but kind of a burden? Like, what do I do with this? And the deep satisfaction for me comes from acknowledging this is me. I've always been this way. It's not going to change. And that I, it's not coming from me. It's coming through me. Right. And I just want to do right by it. Mm-hmm. And I think we talked a little it's bit. A, of, it's a gift and you're honoring your gift. That's right. Essentially. Yes. Yes. Well, and I feel like yeah. if we're honoring our gifts, we're, we're rewarded. Absolutely. Hmm. And, and I think one of the biggest rewards recently comes from, and we talked a little bit about this on the mountain today. It's like, for me, the sweet spot that I finally get steady glimpses of is being loving, but also realistic. Mm-hmm. Like, it, like you can be so loving that you lose touch with the reality. Too much trust isn't good either. But you don't want to be unloving to yourself and others because then you look at the world through cynical lens and then you're not going to be doing your best work. So for me, it's all about being loving, but realistic. Mm-hmm. And I think... Prayer helps me arrive there. It does many, many other things. I also just feel like our time here is limited. And I've been so blessed by people who have come along. I mean, those academic mentors meant everything to me. Mm-hmm. But so did the academic mentors that I didn't work for directly that helped me along. So did the high school football coach that taught me how to lift. So did Lex Friedman, you, Joe Rogan, right? Rich Roll, people who gave me the opportunity to talk on their podcasts about science. And, and then eventually, you know, we started our own podcast. So to me, it's this like beautiful ecosystem. And I never, ever think of myself as like, okay, like I'm here professing to people. I just, Mm -hmm. I just love being a part of it. I also just like when I was a kid, I'm crewed up with a bunch of great people, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not all guys, Rhonda, Patrick too, who, by the way, folks, people always say, who was first man in on public facing science and health education? Uh, not first man, first woman, it was Rhonda. Mm-hmm. She was the first. Then came Matt Walker, me, some others, right? Mm-hmm. So I think the community of podcasters also, I feel like, wow, like this is as great as when I discovered neuroscience mm. and I actually feel more resonance with podcasters because it's really like of the love. You, you can't have a podcast that is worth anything in terms of its success or its content unless the person doing it loves that thing. Right. Like you can't, it's not journalism. It's not media. I mean, and there's a media component because mm-hmm. it's public facing, but it's like you love bow hunting. Yeah. You love fitness. You love hammering away every day. Right. Right. And so you're, you're basically talking about the things that you would be doing anyway. And so Mm -hmm. am I, and so is Joe and so is Lex and so is Rich, you know, so is Rhonda. Yeah. And we're getting paid for this. Right. Exactly. I do this for free. Exactly. So if anyone out there wants to do a podcast or social media, what I would say is make sure that what you talk about is something that you really, truly care about. And Rob, my producer and I were talking about this today that 
you know, I think young people would be wise to figure out th at least three things that they absolutely love doing. And hopefully one of those things can be your source of income in life. Mm -hmm. Maybe you need an advanced degree to build it up. Maybe you don't. I don't think everyone needs to go to college, but maybe like you want to be a lawyer or a doctor, yeah. you, need, you need the degree. A bow hunter? No. No, the degree, <laughs> degree is earned out there in the, in the, on the hunts. Right. So I think that, but if you love those things and then you also want to teach other people and share how much you love it, well, then you should be a podcaster, but you can't, the podcasting is not like the career. The career is the, all the stuff that right. goes into the podcast. Right. So anyway, I, I feel extremely blessed. I'm completely humbled that students would show up on a Thursday night to listen to that lecture. We do live events and you get, you know, like thousands of people that like, it's, it's wild. And then I also just turn off any kind of notion that it's like about me. Cause it's not, it's coming through me, but to me, it just feels like the biggest gift in the world is just learn and share. You know, people say they're blessed all the time. Just kind of like a, I don't, I don't know. It doesn't mean maybe what it should. It's just kind of like a habit. Oh, I'm, yeah, I've been blessed. But when I, when you, when I hear you say you, you feel blessed and then I see the, the, I mean, there's people there last night just staring at you, just like, couldn't believe you were there. And what I saw from you was this. Thank mm -hmm. you. Thank you. I truly believe you do feel blessed. It's not just lip service because I saw it, but I saw these people looking and they want to put you up like on an altar, you know, and that probably feels odd, but to me, your personality, your mindset or where you are allows you to be like, thank you. I'm, I'm a conduit. This is what, this is, I've been blessed with this. And I'm sharing it. And it feels very genuine to me after seeing yeah. it and hearing it and spending time with you. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, it makes me feel good. Oh, thank you. I mean, I, I, your perception is correct that I, I truly feel blessed and I, and I am so grateful and humbled uh, for all of it. And I also, it's like, <laughs> I, mean, I just have to laugh, right? I'm like doing the same thing as I did when I was a kid. I go learn something, I get excited about, oh, mindsets or the years, the data, or like, I'll find a gem in the literature. Like, oh my God, people are going to, their minds are going to be, so, they're going to be so happy. They're going to be, mm -hmm. so many people will benefit. They're going to like this. Like, or even if they don't like it, like, this is super cool, like to me. And so it, it, it just like geysers out of me. Yeah. And, and so if people are focused on the idea of like the personality that's delivering it, or the fact that I always wear a black shirt, so like, cool, like that's fine if it, if it, if that's what, you know, there's an anchor point there for them. But for me, it's really about the information allowing truly about the information, allowing people to feel better and do better. And look, I, I also have... A, a deep, you know, I'll share something I've never shared before. My, my mom's like a super do-gooder. When we were growing up, we'd see a homeless guy in our neighborhood. There, there aren't, it wasn't that frequent back then. There was a guy mm -hmm. who wore sheepskins. She, we called him the sheep man. Mm -hmm. She put him in a hotel. Mm -hmm. We didn't know this, but she, she was like trying to save everybody. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it eventually wore on her, you know, that the world isn't healed up the way that she wished. And, you know, I, I'm not a bleeding heart. But I, I do have a bit of that for my mom. Like I, I do believe that it's at least part of my role in being here to try and help heal, mm -hmm. heal the world. And, and by giving and sharing and the fact I can do it by doing things that I love while also accepting that like, listen, people are going to do what they're going to do. I can't control everything. Mm -hmm. There's a reason for it. I believe that. Like, like humanity's not ready 
yet. Mm-hmm. Not Parts ready yet. It. Right. Yeah. Ho- ho- hopefully that someday, right. Mm-hmm. Um, it will be, but, but I can just do my part. And so I, you know, I'm, I, I really I'm trying to deepen my sense of purpose all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talked about prayer earlier and asking for things and I do, mm-hmm. you know, please help me move my character defects, get through today. There's a, I has to not get injured on the hike, you know, little, <laughs> little things, right? Yeah. It's kind of my, more minor, but then there's also the listening piece mm. and like here, you know, and hearing, you know, the messages of, well, Hey, listen, you know, you know, you need to rest or you need to push harder. Mm-hmm. I hear that sometimes you need to push harder. You need to go deeper. You need to be more precise. You need Who to do you the, hear that from? Oh, I mean, if I'm in my mind, that's coming from th- yourself, from God. No, not from oh, me. Oh. I, I mean, I don't think that there, I, I couldn't come up with that message. Okay. My mind doesn't have the structure or the wherewithal to do that. Mm. And it comes through as a very clear, you know, message, right. Of this is what you need to do. You need to go harder into the paint or mm-hmm. you need to, sometimes you need to rest you you need to back off when mm-hmm. that's not my impulse. That's how I, I I know it must not come from me. I see. Yeah, right. That makes. Sense. I mean, does this any? I mean, is any of this sound? Is this sounding crazy or is this? No, is no, no. That resonate. No, I just. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just wondered how is that how you also deal with? You've had critics. I mean, everybody. Sure. Everybody who stands out and is making an impact. There's people who don't. They are jealous or whatever. So so. There's been critics of sure. Andrew Huberman, yeah, including some some very uh, well respected scientists. And is it, yeah. and is it because your sense of purpose and this message that you're feeling, that you're able to ignore that? Well, or, I, I, or do you ignore it? Yeah, it, at first it was hard to ignore. Sort of like, hey, you know, like I was one, and I still consider myself one of the neuroscience community. Um, you know, I earned my stripes, mm-hmm. right? Those papers didn't publish themselves. You went to school you know? for 50 fucking years. Yeah. And I reviewed those people's papers and I know about them and I know they're not perfect, but you know, anytime you're trying to you get in defensive and someone's pointing their finger at you and you're pointing back, like you're, yeah. you know, and it's, listen, we all have that impulse, including mm-hmm. me. Yeah. I would say about a third of scientists were very supportive and said, Hey, go for it. This is great. People are learning. I clearly understand why you're doing this. And, and actually I'm benefiting from some of the information. A lot of scientists are really unhealthy. A lot of physicians are really unhealthy. Look at them. Right. Okay. It's not, <laughs> it's not just weight. Sometimes it's weight. It's also just look at them. They're mm-hmm. clearly not well. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and many of them are, but fewer are than aren't actually. Okay. About a third, I would say, um, just, I haven't heard from mm-hmm. maybe they're, you know, and then there are no uh, comment, no they're, comment. Yeah. And then a third, I think, have been critical in part that we run sponsors and things like that. And I always say, look, mm. the, the, the podcast to me is a perfect ecosystem. The information is available free, mm-hmm. free, completely free. And you don't have to watch it. You can slide past the ad reads if you don't want. But a lot of people want to know where they can obtain things that could be useful to them. Helpful. And they obviously choose to do, some choose to do that. And that helps subsidize it for the kid that can't afford it right? They can't afford the podcast. Mm-hmm. They get it free. Everyone gets it free. And then of course the sponsors are happy. So the, and the funny thing is, and this was pointed out by a colleague of mine, usually the people that are criticizing that, you know, that you're doing this podcast thing and there's advertisements, they're usually at universities where guess what? Getting the education is behind a paywall. Mm-hmm. So the, the alternative is to put it behind a paywall, which right. we don't do. So it's not that I'm completely oblivious to it or that I ignore it, but 
What's kind of interesting, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, when you hear something the first time or 10 times, it hurts mm-hmm. a little bit. You're like, hey, being misunderstood hurts. You want to well, say- When you're passionate about something. Right. When it's something you've been doing since you're six years right. old because you love it and you're still doing it. And now all of a sudden you're, because you're successful, you're criticized for it. Right. Because maybe these people haven't had the success. They see you, they're jealous. And so they want to try to tear it down or you're in shape. They're not in shape and they do the same thing. And you're like, well, he's getting- He's getting attention because he's jacked. Well, I think there's well, all sorts of ways to yeah, I think it. Critique always reveals people's insecurities too. I mean, the first, a lot of them will say, say things and you realize, wow, they really think that I'm t- saying that people have to do all this stuff. I'm just giving you options. Mm-hmm. I'm not telling anyone what to do. I'm just giving you op- I heard options. you say that last night. Yeah, you were yeah. talking about underage drinking and you said, I don't, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just telling you, here's what happens. Right. So yeah. do as you will, but know what you're doing. Yeah. And then in terms of the critique, I also think part of it is because I don't just talk about my own work or cover subjects that I've worked on. I also go and research subjects that are in other people's domain. And I've always invited people to give me critique. In fact, we now have a formal portal on HubermanLab.com website where we invite, if you have a critique, put what the critique is, put what the basis of your critique is, right? Mm-hmm. Not, I don't like it, but you know, are there data that are conflicting? You know, we'll see what comes in. But to this day, no one's ever, I've gotten critique, especially on Twitter slash X, yeah. but no one's actually said, this is the problem I have. Mm-hmm. So that they just seem un- unhappy with it. But I will say, it's also been wonderful to hear the people that have benefited from morning sunlight, improved sleep, improved focus, and, and a number of other topics that we've covered. So when you get those critiques early on, it, it stings a bit, but it's sort of like publishing papers. When you get reviews back, anonymous reviews, the first ones, you're like, ouch, oof. But by the time you're publishing your 50th or 60th paper, mm-hmm. you know, it bounces off you like, you know, like cap gun fire. Yeah. And in the same way on social media, you know, if I make a mistake, I hope it's pointed out. But if people attack, mm-hmm. I, just, I mean, I've gotten so much of it yeah. since I started that now I'm like, meh. Pretty and I don't mind it. It also really helps to have an amazing team and people around you. And that another thing I love about podcasting is that it's not competitive between podcasters. Mm-hmm. We have the same guests on, we run different content. So it's nice to have a community of people like you and Joe and Lex and et cetera. You can refer to if you're feeling kind of like, hey, how seriously should I take this, this mm-hmm. critique? But having my podcast team, which is, you know, many people, but it was started as kind of four, four people, um, Rob, Mike, Ian and me, um, I run things by them. Hey, like, do you think this is valid? Or should anything? Uh, yes or no. And sometimes it's like, hey, yeah, we should we should talk about something that we could have done better. Mm-hmm. I am far from perfect. I mean, I have many, many, many flaws, but I do strive to get things right. I'll put anywhere from a d- dozens to hundreds of hours into prep. I would think you know? that so the people that say that you shouldn't be sponsored, it's like, well, you're working your ass off. I mean, preparing for these with these teachings you're doing basically online in your podcast, it's like, why wouldn't you be compensated? And for the people that saying you shouldn't be, but are behind a paywall at the college, you know, it's almost, I don't know. I mean, you're offering, you're offering education to people who maybe never went to college, couldn't afford to go to college, but have learned so much from you for free. I mean, how could that be criticized? Well, I think one issue with academia that I absolutely have is that so much of its power is derived from this in-group, out-group thing. Mm-hmm. Like if people really understood how science was the done. The have and have nots. Yeah, if people, if people really understood how science was done and that the people doing it are just like everybody else, mm-hmm. but they picked that, 
they lose a little bit of their cachet. I believe everyone should at least have the information to give them access to mental health, physical health, and up-leveling their performance. Mm -hmm. So I make it zero cost. And I think that, you know, when I say everyone, I mean everyone. And this is one of the great things about those early challenges I had. Had I just gone to school and had the perfect home and then gone off to college and then got a job and maybe I would have been a scientist, I don't think I would have the kind of understanding of what it's like to, you know, like I had a friend those high school years and he had 14 brothers and sisters and his mother was a crack addict and he fortunately made something of himself. But like, I don't, I truly don't distinguish between the gender, the Nobel prize winning scientists, the homeless person on the street. I, I do believe in personal accountability, but you don't know that person's story. Mm -hmm. I don't know that person's story. You know, everyone deserves the opportunity and no one gets away without hard work. So there's that. But I do believe that giving him information out for free in the form of clear under, you know, clear to them format is really key. You know, a lot of academics use language that, you know, people go, well, like they're really smart. Yeah. But that's yeah. talking over people, mm -hmm. right? So people say dumbing down is bad. Talking over is bad. So that's my favorite thing about you. You can talk about shit. I would have no idea how to understand it, but in a way I can understand it. You know what I mean? Well, it's like it, today I was asking a lot of questions about bow hunting and thank you for that. Yeah. One of my goals, like one of the big challenges for me is how to take complex information that's like embedded in nomenclature and make it accessible. Yeah. I mean, you, you challenged me on that earlier tonight. You said, wait, what were you doing in graduate school? And I'm like, okay. And it made me think about how the, what we call them in, in my field is axon guidance, molecules, chemo repellents and stuff saying, you know, you build a nervous system by saying, don't go here, go here, go here. And that's one of the things I really enjoy is trying to take complex themes and break them down into mm -hmm. still accurate and actionable language so that the everyday person can say, hey, yeah, I, I understand why I need morning sunlight, a circadian rhythm. I, I've never heard of circadian, but like, that makes sense. I understand why elevating your heart rate and your blood pressure with exercise would cause lower heart rate and blood pressure later because like it adapts, it changes, you know. There's so many people in the world that don't have, and frankly, there's no need for them to get a, a formal education mm -hmm. or certainly advanced education. So, but they need, I believe they need the information too. Well, it can better their life. Right, and, and, and position them to do more in whatever endeavor they're in and mm -hmm. position relationships in better places. So again, it, so I'm at the point now where if someone sends me a valid criticism, meaning like I, I made an error, then certainly I'll, I'll correct that error. But otherwise I, I talk to my team mm -hmm. and if it still bothers me, we're back to this again, but it's true. I close my eyes and I just, I ask for, for guidance. Mm -hmm. what, 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 what do I do with this? Mm -hmm. And then I listen mm -hmm. and I take that in for whatever information I hear seriously. Yeah. I'm, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I've gained I've gained a lot from just hearing your story, and it helps me understand you better. Which is, you know, how do you really understand somebody without sitting down and having a conversation like this? Because you know, normal life, you don't sit down for an hour or two hours and hear about. So tell me about your life story. But it's, I mean, I don't know. I think you've you're in a position now where you're impacting. And we just said that, you know, you're helping 
improve somebody's life with maybe some tips, health tips, but also that has a compounding effect because if they're performing better in life, better at their job, then others are too, right? Because the, the positive impact you've given them, hopefully they're passing on. And that's the ripple effect we're talking about where, you know, you want to make a positive difference here and honor, honor the gifts you've been given. What better way to do it than help improve somebody's life and health? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know. I don't, yeah, I, I can understand, I can understand, uh, I can't understand, I guess, but uh, it's not surprising that people would criticize the podcast and, and being a capitalist, I guess, but isn't everybody in some way? Oh yeah. And I'm telling you, our tax dollars are paying their, their salaries, these people. And I'm sure you like your parents fee to show up and like speak at the, at the university is probably a lot, right? Oh, for what I did at U of O? Yeah. No, zero. <laughs> I did it for U of O for nothing. They, I have a friend there and he asked me to do it. Now we do live events and we charge a, you know, admissions fee. We try and keep the tickets price. But yeah, reasonable. so that, that right there. I did that because I, I wanted to come up here and see my host, Chris mm -hmm. at the university. And, and they started the center on the, the science of happiness and well-being. And I thought that is a great initiative. Let's go. You In came fact, up here. Yeah, we paid our tickets up. I mean, they actually <laughs> booked my ticket, but to, we extended to come here and we took care of that. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not, I did it because I was excited at the opportunity and then also to sit down and, and run and yeah. carry with you. I don't, I don't want, I don't want that point to be missed. I mean, you, so you did this for your friend and you're excited about the program at the university. Yeah. And, and I enjoy it. I was like, wow. Like, and I've always loved U of O I've come up here for the track meets for the Olympic track and field trials, except for the year that COVID where they didn't allow outsiders. I yeah. went to the previous two and I, I love the story of Nike and pre and, mm -hmm. you know, and Bowerman read the Bowerman book. And I've always loved U of O I've always loved Oregon. And yeah, I came up here cause I wanted to hang with you and, <laughs> and, and yeah, I mean, all of it comes truly from the heart. It's, it's, like, how could I, I mean, there's no other way to do it in my, in my view. Yeah. And I will say this, that as much criticism as I've gotten, I've also gotten some notes from faculty, including some really like a Nobel prize winner outside my field and saying like, Hey, I think this is great. Keep going, keep going. Mm -hmm. And that, that really helps. But even if they didn't send me that encouragement, like kind of like that kid I was way back when I, I can't help myself. Yeah. It's because again, it's, it's not me going, okay, like, how do I pick something that people are going to like? And this is like, what's my reward for this? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that's how a lot of people get through life. They're like, you know, they want to know if I do this job, how much am I getting per hour? You know what I mean? That's, that's most people. I mean, you got to make ends meet. And, um, at the same time doing things for money, mm -hmm. oh, like if you people out there, if you, if you approach life that way, you're going to be miserable and you're probably also never going to have enough. If you do things because you love them mm -hmm. and you do them in a principled way, I, I, I've never seen it fail. Mm -hmm. I've never seen it fail. And the, the idea of, you know, and I've punched the clock before too, yeah. right? I mean, it, you know, I've, I've done that too. I'm delivering bagels, bussing tables, um, you know, all sorts of things. But um, and it wasn't always easy. I mean, there were nights when I'm doing experiments and experiments are failing and stuff, but you just have to be grateful for the opportunity and then just suck it up and just get right back out there. I mean, reps, 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 reps. Mm -hmm. it, I mean, it works. It's always worked and it's always going to work. Yeah. And there are no real shortcuts. Right. Every time we see someone try and take a shortcut, 
I think it's safe to name names because, I mean, they're all in jail anyway. Um, you know, I think Sam Bankman Freed got got uh, found guilty. 110 years or something like that. I didn't see the sentence, but you know, or, or you know, Liz Holmes, Theranos. I mean, when mm -hmm. people cheat, sometimes they get away with it, but a lot, you know, the shortcuts don't work. And sometimes yeah. they get people in, you know, in jail for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. And it, also assuming that there's some quick hack that's going to get you there is, is mm -mm. but the things that I share are really about giving people also a sense of agency. Like if people have anxiety, like a lot of people have anxiety mm -hmm. and they don't know what to do. Like, do they take medication? Should they meditate? You know, so you give them a tool like physiological sighing and people can look that up to see what it is. And they do it and they go, oh, this thing works. And like, now they have a sense of control. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times people feel stricken by their biology and their psychology. You give people a little sense of control over themselves and they go, oh, wow. And then, you know, it's like with the bow, like, you know, like I kept drawing, what was it, left or right? You know, you're yeah. supposed to put a little hole in the paper and I'm like ripping a, a typewriter line. Yeah. And, then, and then I realized that, you know, that the way the the string is coming, coming off, off the, the cam, cam is, mm -hmm. is tilted. And so I'm like looking up and you adjust and did I fix it perfectly? No, but you make that adjustment. You go, mm -hmm. there's agency there. Like I can get results. better at this if I pay attention. Yeah. And so I think it's the same with our health. It's the same with anything. Mm -hmm. And it would be a shame if we could do it well the first time or perfectly the first time where's the fun in that that was a that was a good question last night which i think rob mentioned he was pleasantly surprised but that one of the questions that came up was if you could take whatever heartbreak or a failure and eliminate it and have it never have happened and, and never feeling felt like that would you do it and more than half of the people said no they wouldn't do it they liked or they didn't like but the feeling of failing or pain was useful and yeah, helped define them i was very surprised by that yeah. answer and um because there's certainly some things i've failed at over and over and over you know i'll be open i mean i've been very successful in my career choices i have amazing friendships i'm fortunate to as far as i know have my physical health knock mm -hmm. on wood and uh <laughs> um but you know i've struggled to merge my career ambitions and the amount of time I put into that with my personal life and building mm -hmm. a family. I'm late to that. Despite some efforts, there've been a lot of failures and I take responsibility for my role in those. Absolutely. But it's something I'm still striving to get right. And I'll, mm -hmm. I'll keep striving to get right. But I agree with what the student said fundamentally that the hardships, the losses, they make the good times way better. Mm -hmm. Sense of appreciation is so deep. And also it shapes us, makes us who we are. And, and I do think having a little bit of a, of a pebble in your shoe sometimes can keep you working harder and, and really like, persevering. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly you're not as hardworking as you are because it's just, you know, keep hammering and succeed every time. It's keep hammering and you get more frequent success over time, mm -hmm. right? but I'm guessing there were some dark years in there too. And you've written about this and some really tough stuff. And, and you had to, you had to parent yourself early yeah. on too. You had to scruff yourself and be like, Hey, mm -hmm. I mean, you, your life took, yeah. took some quick turns towards like, Hey, it's now or never. Well, I mean, your story resonates with me because I, I felt that too. I didn't, my dad wasn't around. I didn't want anything to do with my stepdad. I was on the streets walking around Portland, seeing a lot of just by myself. So like the lonely part, that's why I asked, did you feel lonely? Because that, that was me. I moved away and my, my brother was back here with my mom 
I felt lonely. So it's just like that was that really resonated with me. And and I I mentioned today when that rock is fucking a pain in the ass to haul up the hill. But it's like it's 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 such it the moment you get into one position. <laughs> your hands start hurting, then your forearms, and you move it to your shoulder, and then you're good for a few paces, and then that starts hurting, you gotta move to the other side, and then your back cramps up, and then your legs are cramping up, so. I just think that, you know, when you go through real challenges and a heartache in life, it's little, like, even though it sucks, carrying the rock up the mountain, that's gonna be over. That's just not lasting more than an hour, you know? So it's like, when you've been through real pain, you can, compartmentalize and say, this isn't whatever, this is temporary. I'm good. So it's like, you know, that kind of going back to that question is like, yeah, I've hurt. I've, I've been in pain. I've been lonely. And this isn't that. Yeah. I can get through this. I can get through this long run. I can get through this race. that's over in three days, even if it's two miles or 200 miles, it's not that bad. Yeah. I think one of the most important things for everybody to be able to say to themselves knowing they're being completely honest is I can do hard things. Mm -hmm. If it gets tough, I know I can do it because I've done it. And I think, you know, you can't ask a two-year-old to say that to themselves or a 10-year-old, but maybe even a 10-year-old, you know, sadly, mm -hmm. you know, if I had my way, everyone would have the, the gift of a near perfect childhood. But if I had my way, also everyone would be able to experience something hopefully not so damaging that they're permanently scarred and dissolve into a puddle of their own tears, but they could say, I can do hard things. Mm -hmm. And I know that to be a fact, not just a mantra, because I've done hard things. Yeah. Or in your case, you can say, I do hard things every day. <laughs> <laughs> I try. I mean, I, I, mostly I do it just because I feel like a fraud half the time or a poser. So I have that written on the rock know, just right? to remind myself I'm a poser. Well, one of the most common questions I get is how can you build confidence? The way you build confidence is by doing hard things, mm -hmm. hard for you, like really challenging, failing. That class, that neural development class that Ben Reese gave me that B plus, mm -hmm. still pissed off about it. That's because not failing, by the way. Was, no, but but where, coming from where I was coming from, anything less than an A mm, was a failure. Was, was was like the beginning of the slide back to being that, Here we go. that 18 year old yeah, kid. Yeah. And I worked so hard mm. and I saw that, and this, that B plus is my favorite course, my favorite grade. Cause it reminded me like it was the hardest class. He was such a difficult professor to like to, the material was like postdoc level, mm -hmm. super difficult. And I just think like I can do hard things. And I, yeah, I think it's that simple. I mean, it's a, it's a short sentence, but it's one that if you know you can state it to yourself honestly, then you can get through whatever. And that's confidence. I do like that one thing that I, you know, have noticed with you, if you, you're always giving credit to, is it, who is it at Stanford? Is it Liz? Who? Oh, uh, Anna Lemke. Yeah, yeah. Anna. One of my favorite people. <laughs> you, but one of my you're, favorite always, people. you're always referencing people you've worked with, professors, people who've impacted you. You're always naming names. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people skip that part. Yeah. You know, well, they talk about how much they've done or how much they've overcome and they, they forget the, the help along the way, but you, you never do. I mean, I've heard you many times. I've listened to your podcast, I listened to you last night, I listened to you today. And it's like, you're always quick to share, share accomplishments, share not where you learned something, the lessons you've learned, people who's helped you. And it's like, I, I just love it because a lot of people, once they get to the top, 
they forget all that part. Mm. You know what I mean? Well, thanks for mentioning that. For me, like it's a little bit difficult to articulate, but when I'm on a Lemke came and gave a lecture on addiction in my course that I teach to medical students, the neurobiology course. And I heard her lecture and I was like, she needs to come on the podcast. She's mm -hmm. amazing. And she was yet to release her great book, Dopamine Nation. And the fact that I've gotten to know her and she's a spectacular human being, but also that her message about addiction is just so powerful, mechanistically makes sense and practical and on and on, and that she's so generous. So for me, mentioning that, first of all, it's what's appropriate because mm -hmm. she did all that work. I didn't do that work. Second of all, like I feel so lucky that I know her. It's the same way I feel about knowing you. I feel so lucky. I mean, I'm, I think I'm, I know I'm going to be doing archery, you know, awesome. like I, I just know it, yeah. you know, whether or not I bull hunt, I guess will remains to be seen, you know, but that's, that would be a wonderful place to take it. But so I'm so lucky or like Joe and what Joe's done to help me, but also just, I love his podcast. And I think he's done some truly important work in the world by having guests on like Matt Walker. Mm -hmm. like I don't Peter like Atiyah. him. You don't like Matt Walker? And he talks about sleep. Oh, <laughs> we'll get no. your sleep ironed out. Matt's a really good guy. But the um, Matt, he doesn't dislike you. It's, the, <laughs> no, it's, it's that Cam has trouble I'm sleeping. I'm just joking. We'll get him squared away. Yeah. But, you know, so I feel so blessed. Like, how lucky am I yeah. that I know these incredible people? Lex tells mm -hmm. me start a podcast. And I meet Rob, who's like, helps me. Then we bring in Mike, who's a photographer. Like, I'm, I'm like beyond grateful. Yeah. So when I'm crediting people, I'm not thinking, oh, got to do this. I'm thinking, I'm so grateful. It's like, it, it it's weird. I, it's more about a feeling in me that, um, you know, I've, I feel like I'm the luckiest guy in the world mm -hmm. and I'm just doing what I would do anyway if there was never a camera or a microphone. Yeah, I, I just I just really noticed it because a lot of people would say, instead of mentioning uh, names, they'd say colleagues. A colleague and I have worked on this project or I, you know, so it's just, it's just, I just notice it. And it's like, it's, I love it. It's awesome. Um, and yeah, I mean, you seem as genuine as, as can be on, um, on your pursuits. But so I did want to, I kind of interrupted you talking about, I think faith and creator, but you talked about you got kicked out of what you were four or five years. And finally, um, your professor who had the two kids came back and said, you got to go. So then what happened? Yeah. So I graduated from my PhD um, and had these papers, which then I allow you to do a postdoc. So I did a postdoc at Stanford, mm. but there's a twist in the story. Okay. I took a postdoc at Harvard because mm. Harvard's Harvard. Yeah. What is that? What is, I don't even know yeah. what the fuck a postdoc means. A postdoc is like, is a four or five year period in which you just do research and you develop your own independent ideas that then you're going to take to your own lab as a professor. Mm. So I went to Harvard. I was supposed to start my postdoc January 1, 2005. Uh, excuse me. Yes, January 1, 2005. I arrived there Halloween night and I started attending lab meetings of this particular professor, even though I haven't started there yet. So he's not paying me. And I observed some things in his treatment of other people, including the janitor. And I'm like, uh oh, mm -hmm. I don't think I can work for this guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was unkind, he was impatient. And I thought, oh no. So I told him, listen, like Professor Lambeau. <laughs> <laughs> so I told him, I said, and he's the head of brain sciences at Harvard at the time. Mm. I'm like, what am I going to do? So I call someone at Stanford 
that had given me an offer earlier and I said, I'd like to come there. And I go to this person at Harvard and I said, listen, you know, I'm going to go, this isn't going to work. And you haven't started paying me. So I'm going to go before you start. Mm -hmm. And he says, no, you're not leaving. Now I'm an adult. I've cleaned up my life, but I also grew up in the skateboarding punk rock scene. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you're not going to tell me, no, I'm How not going to go. How old were you at this time? Uh, I was about so 18 years ago. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I was about the 30 years old. Okay. Yeah. And he said, listen, I think you're depressed. You're not thinking clearly. Mm. Maybe you're having some mental issues. I want you to see a psychologist and come back. Mm. And I left and then I walked in the next day and I said, I'm leaving. Here are my keys. And he said, you're not going. And I said, watch me. And I left. Mm. And I was like, oh my God. Now at this point, I don't have a professorship. I'm afraid, right? I mean, you know, where's my career going to go? Can you be blackballed? Oh yes. Mm. Oh yes. So, so I go, but risk. that's a huge risk, but mm. I just couldn't do it. Fortunately, there was someone back at Stanford who was eager to have me in his lab. So I went to his lab and I said, listen, I'll work on whatever you tell me. He said, well, you should do the thing that you were going to work on in that lab. And I go, no, no, I don't want any beef with that guy. Mm. And he goes, no, you absolutely should do it. Mm. You should take him on. And I was like, you're kidding me. No, 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 <laughs> I don't want to do any, but he convinced me. Mm. And in the end, I ended up in a direct competition with that lab, except they've got an army and I'm one guy. Mm. And I had to be clever in how I, the projects I picked. And in the end, I held my own, published those papers, did well as a postdoc and got hired to run my own lab first at UC San Diego. And then, and then I transferred my lab to Stanford. What was, what was the paper on? So at that time I was, and this gets a little technical, but at that time, what we were trying to figure out was we're still trying to figure out the wiring of the nervous system, you know, a huge, a huge question that's still unresolved is, you know, what are the circuits in the brain? Mm. And we know that, you know, the visual stuff is in the back and the, you know, the planning stuff is in the front, but the fine wiring, and so I was still developing genetic tools mm. to visualize those connections. And so as a postdoc, the way I competed with that other lab, and they got theirs too, they did pretty well too, was I developed a lot of tools and I gave them all away. Mm. And as a consequence, the community outpublished him mm. or at least made it sh certain that he didn't get full credit. Full credit. Yeah. yeah. You got to share. And that was kind of my, like, you know, that was my piece. Yeah. And you also, when you share widely, people are grateful. Hmm. When you share widely, you suddenly have friends that are teaching you new things that you didn't know. Hmm. And I realized this is the key. Like you don't hold everything close to your chest. You give it away. Hmm. Now you protect your own pursuits, right? You don't give everything away. Right. But I was like, wow, there's this whole other way of doing science where you, you share. And I became which, known- Which is what you're doing now. This is what I'm doing now. And yeah. I became known for being extremely generous with these resources. Hmm. And, and then when I started my own lab, I started working on neural regeneration. I always wanted to work on this. I want to have an impact on the world. So we started working on how you repair neurons, brain cells after brain damage, especially mm. in the visual system. We continue to make attempts to try and cure certain forms of blindness, glaucoma in particular. And we've had some degree of success in the animal models that are now being implemented in humans and we'll see where it goes. So. You know, that's, that's how the story went. And, and I will say along those years, I, you know, sometimes I trained less than others, you know, um, there was a time when I only lifted one day a week and ran three days a week. And that's mm -hmm. the worst shape I've ever been in. If you see pictures of me when I was a graduate student, I look very different, I like slimmed down a lot. 
was just working constantly. The picture I saw today, you looked like you've been lifting. It seems <laughs> like it's going viral. All right, for the record, I just want to say this. Uh, Cam posted a picture of me with my shirt off. Here's the thing. I never intended to take my shirt off, but I started that rock carry with a hoodie on. And it, quickly, I was starting to overheat. So I took off the hoodie, and then I had the shirt, and the shirt was soaking wet. Mostly sweat, but some water I threw on myself, too. And then at some point, I was like, I'm going to be so much more comfortable if I can just get a shirt off and be... <laughs> you know, ventilating better. Right. Um, and so I took my shirt off. I'm like, the hell with it. This rock is going to land on that monument. Come hell or high water. Before it touches the, the ground. <laughs> yeah. Period. Yeah. So it, I wasn't thinking about any social media posts. I was mm. thinking about getting that rock on the monument and whatever happened in the meantime. Yeah. That's fine. So be it. So be it. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think, you know, I'm, I like to think I'm benevolent and I, give credit where credit's due, et cetera. But also if I have a goal, you know, mm -hmm. as you do for you, like I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to hit that goal. Right. I, you, I think building in a sense of determination and building up a sense of determination and, and weathering it, um, and doing hard things like learning to do hard things is so valuable. Well, I mean, I don't think that's just lip service either because you had the goal of getting the rock to the top without setting it down. And I, I don't, you know, all your other achievements in life, I don't know anything about really other than what you've said. But what I saw today, you had many times to take an out. Yeah, you offered me. Many times. <laughs> I said, let's trade. Let's, you just take this, just whatever, just to right here. You can set it down right here. And it's like, so, I mean, your, the lessons you're, you're talking about, I saw firsthand. It's not just it's not just talk. So I mean, got my respect there for sure. Well, thank you. And and Rob, who was out with us, has had multiple Ironmans under his belt. And I also didn't want to disappoint you or him. <laughs> I also I think that doing hard things with other people is also fun. Yeah. I mean, it was a lot of fun. I have to say. And people might go, "How is that fun?" Well, then you haven't done it, right? Yeah. If you do it, you know, you, you feel closer to people. And I'll tell you, the probability of me carrying that rock up from the parking lot to that monument if you guys weren't there is zero minus one million no chance and then today i heard something outrageous mm -hmm. and you showed me the video you carried a 130 pound rock up that thing mm -hmm. which is bananas mm -hmm. like when i think about that i'm like i mean i have to be honest i don't, I don't, th I don't think i could do it not not currently i bet you could but what i like uh, to your point we looked at all the photos of the guests on the wall and it's like every person, I think we went through almost all of them and they all have this story that stands out about the experience. And I'm, as I said, I'm not a Rogan. I can't just sit down and have just some awesome conversation, but I can do better. I'm not saying it's awesome, but I can do better when I've shared an experience, a, a day with somebody of working hard, shooting arrows, uh, archery, talking. It's like, that's that's where i'm good you know or better i'm not saying i'm good at anything but i'm better and so i feel like my part of this discussion is better because we shared that just like all those people on the wall we shared something today that i'm going to tell other people about and that's that should be life right i mean as a hunter that's a big part of being a hunter is telling the story of the hunt to me this is just life this is just what do you, and I've always told people, it's like, whatever you're doing in life, make sure you got good stories to tell. And that's it. It's like, we got a great story. Yeah, I love that. And I love it because there's a, 
a long tradition, meaning thousands of year tradition mm -hmm. of people doing things during the day and then convening around a fire yeah. or light, or in this case, we're, we're under the light a studio talking yeah. about it mm -hmm. and, and telling the stories. And yeah. I learned from a colleague, Sachin Panda, who's at the Salk, he's done a lot in circadian biology. And he said, you know, this fire, these evening discussions about the day have carried our species and civilization forward for a long time. I, you know, I, I think what you just said makes me, you know, raises an idea in the back of my head. I'm familiar with this sensation where I think there's really something fundamental to this. I mean, maybe this is part of the path forward for, for humanity is to have people gathering in the evening with neighbors or family again and starting to like relate about the day and starting to bridge the gap because as opposed to all of us being in our own unique portals to the world through through social media, which I, I'm a fan of social media. I'm on social media, but maybe we should get some like evening story fireside chats going on social media. I love it. You and me both and see who else would join us and just talk oh. about like, hey, like tell me a story from today. You got five minutes and, yeah. and, and hear from people. I love it. And it's just, I love hearing stories. We love telling stories. And it's like, that's what keeps life interesting to me because we go through life and we have, what are we doing that's, that's what stands out? What are we doing something that somebody would want to hear about, you know? And I just think it's so special when we can sit around and, and reminisce or, um, remember when, or today was great because it's just, I don't know. It just, it kind of feels like it energizes you. It gives you meaning. Yeah. Well, I think it connects us through time, right? I mean, it, if we, if our experiences during the day, we're just erased at the end of the day. I think this came up in the discussion with the U of O students too. Like you could just, your memories were gone at the end of each day, including the hard stuff. We, we wouldn't be worth anything. Mm -hmm. Connecting our experience with others and through time and relating to earlier experiences is so fundamental to who we are and how we script our life experience. I think it's, um, yeah, you're really onto something with this. I don't, I don't quite have the, the, the clear articulation around this just yet, but Again, when I get that feeling on my, in the back of my head on the right <laughs> side, it means there's something there. So I think you're on to something. Haynes. Yeah. Well, I don't know. This is this has been one of the best days I've had. I mean, this has been so fun, uh, and I'm so thankful for your time. I know we, you know, we talked about well, we're going to start at this time. We're going to finish about this time. We got a lot to do today, and we're well past that time. Oh, and it's, it's like, all good. Yeah. It's it's been such a great day, and I just loved how uh, excited you were to delve into archery. I cannot wait till we can hunt. And we talked about, I mentioned this up on the mountain, but, um, about, you know, your, your life and like you perform at such a high level and I perform at like the basics of the basics. No, Just, man, come on. Your, your performance <laughs> and your endeavors is, is truly in the top point. Well, oh, 0.01%. I, I, let's be fair. <laughs> I'll say it since if you won't. <laughs> I want to share like the basics of humanity is killing and surviving hunting. That's like, we have to do that. Somebody has to do that. And I want to share that just the, the, with you, because I just feel like you could articulate it unlike almost anybody else, because like it's, you're, you're studying the brain, you're studying all this upper level at the highest level of humanity, but Imagine if you could sandwich that with the basics too. And it's like base level survival. I just think it just excites me to think about sharing that with you and, you know, hunting, 
being successful, yes, killing an animal because we need to kill to survive. Life begets life. And then breaking that animal down. And we talked about packing out weight on your back. Yes, we packed a rock today or weight today, but that's to prepare us for packing an animal out after we kill it to bring it home, to share with our family. I showed you my freezer full of meat. We ate meat. That it, that's, that's everything. Cause without that, we can't be studying the brain. You know what I mean? No, that's the, that's the bedrock. And, and, you know, someone has to do it, right? If a good, we talked earlier about, you know, grocery and factory farm meat, like that's such a, like a horrible industry Mm -hmm. period. And, and the idea that you provide in this way, is amazing. I will, I will say that, um, I'm so glad we did what we did today. It would, I learned so much. I, I'm certain I'm going to be doing archery. I'm certain. And hopefully I I'll be wait. bow hunting elk. Uh, someday I'll get a bull. Hopefully. We're going to do it. Um, I, I'm not being hyperbolic when I say that today was like definitely one of the best days of my life. Really? It was. Oh I'm totally God. buzzing. I learned so much. I turned to Rob at one point. I was like, today's like the best day. <laughs> it's amazing. I learned so much new things. Got to do with amazing people. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful out. And there's something to carry forward in terms of a skill to pursue mm-hmm. and, and really drop into. And, um, and that doesn't happen to me often. You know, I'm not like, oh, you know, I'm going to pick up golf. No, like I don't pick up new things often um, and want to stick with them. So I'm so grateful to you. And I'm, uh, yeah, today was one of the best days of my life. That mean, I'll, I, never, I'll never forget it. Uh, that means so, you know, I can't challenge you intellectually, like, you know, maybe some of your colleagues or maybe what you've been, you know, what you've been so hungry to pursue in life. But because you saying that is like, well, fuck, maybe I can offer something. I guess I did. You, so you I, have. I, I feel given, so grateful. You, you not only have you offered, you've given me so much and your team as well. So much is it, it's hard to come up with words for me to have a difficulty coming up with words means I'm <laughs> overtaken. Uh, it's hard for me to, to put words to it that, that are adequate. Uh, you know, it was amazing. Oh, thank I, you. I, I'm not going to be the same. Thank you. You know, normally I end this podcast with handing you your new bow, but who knows where the hell it is. It's beautiful. <laughs> and it's yeah, black. Brianna, can you it's get a, it? It's a, the, uh, I love the color. We call that the, murdered out. Murdered that, out. And that, that goes with your, your the, wardrobe. The all black. Well, the all black thing is I always did, even before I had a podcast. Mm. You know, I get a friend who's on Twitter, Dave Feldheim, is a professor at UC Santa Cruz. And one day he just tweeted it out a few years ago. He said, he always wore the black shirt. Yeah. And that's because um, it's not for Johnny Cash. It's Joe Strummer, singer from The Clash, mm. Mescaleros. He, he would give, he would play shows in long sleeve button down shirt, just soaking sweat. And he would that's never fun. even peel up his sleeves. He would never roll up his sleeves. Oh, here it is. Yeah. So here... Here is your brand new bow. You shot so well today. Thank you with so a uh, ton of guidance. Oh man, this thing is beautiful. Yeah, that's uh, well, that will kill a bull elk. Wow. So, yeah, love gonna... this thing. There's this feeling when you tuck that thumb under the jaw mm-hmm. and come back and you beat up on that whole thing and oh, yeah, man. yeah, level up. Yeah. We even talked about the level, the pins, the peep. A lot, a lot of visual cues there. Yeah, there's the, thank you for this. Yeah, I'm, I'm so immensely grateful. It's beautiful. This is, you're, you know, you explained your purpose. This is my purpose. I love it. This is my pur- purpose, sh- sharing the world of archery. So it's, uh, you know, this is everything to me. Well, I can tell and the world can tell. Like you, you can't, you can't fake what you do. It's, uh, it clearly comes from the heart and it's like wired throughout you. 
and you're so generous with it. And gosh, the folks at the shop and you and everyone spend so much time, like so much time getting everything exactly right. And in one moment I thought like, wow, like, do, do I deserve this? You know, and I don't know if I deserve it or not, but I'll tell you, I'm, I'm going to put it to good use. Good. Well, I, we're going to come, I'm going to go down, stay with you. Please do. Yeah. We're going to get that shoot the bows in your backyard. It's going to be awesome. Thank you for coming to Eugene, to Springfield, to my home, to the mountain with me and to the bow rack. I appreciate you. Oh, well, thank you ever so much for hosting me. And again, today has been phenomenal. I'm not going to be the same and for the better going forward is I said it before, I'll say it again. Today was one of the best days of my life and I so appreciate you. So glad we met, so glad we became friends. I consider you a colleague in the podcasting <laughs> space and I, listen, I, I just really appreciate you, brother. All right, thank you, brother. Hoyt Archery has been my bow hunting sponsor since 2005. And personally, I really don't care what bow you shoot, what brand it is. I just hope that you have the same level of confidence in your equipment as I have in mine. Because I know if I get one opportunity with my Hoyt, it's going to pay off.